Breaking the Glass, episode 20. So she walks by and she wasn't able to come to the events anymore, but she tells the lady, y'all should go. Let the dialogue change my life. Mm. It's the reason that I'm, it's the reason I'm financially, about, I'm financially independent. Oh, and wow. I was like, okay, go, all right, sister, tell me more. I mean, I was, I was advertising, but I'm like, your advertisement better right, than mine. Right. So, tell, you know, tell me more. Come to find out when I had done one event at this other, at this other location, she had come out, I brought in a couple of financial experts and we were doing the smart money one-on-one class, one-on-one classes. She ended up coming to a class where we had a, um, a lawyer who was teaching estate planning. She, she attached to the um, lawyer, get her estate plan. Then we had a stock class. The guy we had teaching the stock class has his own community. So she had come to our class. She goes attached to him and we taught her how to invest. Wow. So for her, the genesis was, just coming to one of our live experiences. She says, I got one, some, one, some, one more semester as a teacher and then I'm done with teaching and I'm doing my own business and I'm financially independent. That's the dream of what the live experience can be in anybody's city if all the smartest people made a point to come to a club and, and give to one another. Those are the type of stories that can happen all the time. Welcome to the Breaking the Glass show with TQ Sinkungu. Together, we'll dig inside the success stories of people of color and share those stories to inspire you. Then we'll break down their path to show you what they did so you can learn from their wisdom and follow in their footsteps. Welcome to episode 20. I want to thank you for the continued ratings and reviews on iTunes. Your ratings and reviews help me move up the rankings. If you want to leave a review, just search iTunes or in Google for TQ Breaking the Glass, and it should be the first link that comes up, and you'll see my podcast. Find me there and leave a rating and review. This week, my interview is with Montoya Smith. He is a philosopher, radio personality, entrepreneur, moderator, and social activist, and he's emerged as an outstanding voice for change. He's also known as Black Socrates and is currently the host of the Mental Dialogue talk show, on Blog Talk Radio. Our friendship goes back to our days at the Air Force Academy together. And this is a person who in recent years is one of a few people who are critical to the development, the creation and success of the Breaking the Glass show. There are a few people who are like that and and he's the catalyst by the numerous discussions we had about race, politics and the community that forced me to think deeply about positions I held about these topics and expand them to include and empathize with other points of view. Smitty grew up in South Carolina um, in a background that was from humble beginnings, but he was raised by a village and, and brought up in a way to have tremendous social impact as well as his academic and athletic success that he experienced. I've had a lot of corporate executives and entrepreneurs on the show, and I wanted to bring Smitty on to show another example of how his success comes from the impact he's had on various people's lives, just like you heard in the intro. He's had an extraordinary social impact, and that impact is going to reverberate for generations to come. That type of thing, it speaks to my personal philosophy. He also has had a story of perseverance. Um, he's had a number of setbacks, as many of us have, and he's just determined that he's too stubborn to quit. That story started at the Air Force Academy, and it was a lifelong theme. He left the military to start a career as a promoter, promoting a music artist. This choice was a decision to follow his passion. 
At the same time, he did suffer some setbacks there. The main partner who was going to provide all the equipment for the company left the business a month after he got started. And then a few years into overcoming that and beginning to promote his artist, his artist wanted to leave the career before it could take off because he wanted to take care of a new child and raise his family. After that, Smitty went to work sales and he got falsely accused of something and was ultimately wrongfully fired from his job. That period of time led to a part of his life where he was going through a period of depression. But what pulled him out of it was focusing back on, again, what is his passion? And it turns out that that's where the entity of Mental Dialogue came about. Mental Dialogue was created in 2008 to raise awareness and reignite the commitment to excellence in the black conscience. Smitty made it his vision to establish an outlet for intellectual awareness through dialogue and philosophy, history, and current events. In fact, his first episode was on whether or not black people should vote for Obama. Some other topics talk about how do we build generational wealth? Is black marriage in a state of emergency? Uh, Do we expect too much of black celebrities? He also puts on events that engage the entire community. He had an event called Project Smarten Up, which looks at solutions for improving the relationships between the African-American community and law enforcement. And most recently, he was actually invited to be at the state capital of Georgia to participate in the 50-year commemoration of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. So Smitty is a person who has challenged me in a number of ways to help expand my mind in different types of discussions. And I think what you hear today will help you learn more about him and expand your mind as well. Please enjoy my discussion with Montoya Smith. My guest today is Montoya Smitty Smith, a.k.a. Black Socrates. Smitty, welcome to the show. Hey, what's going on, King? How you doing? You glad, to, glad to be on, brother. Glad to be a part of, of history, King. Yeah, yes, sir. Well, I know you want to say glad to have me because usually I'm on your show, but I'm happy today to have my friend Montoya <laughs> Smith be on my show, you know. Uh, and we, I like I, it, brother. Yes, I, li- I like it. I like it. The elevation. Well, I love it, brother. Well, Smitty, man, we um we normally start with a something I like to call the lightning round background. So why don't you give us a little flavor or feel for what life was like for you coming up out there in the South Click? Hey, South Carolina, absolutely. That's South Carolina. Uh, definitely born and raised in the South, South Carolina. Um, mother had me at a very young age in a small town called Honeyer. Path, South Carolina, or as I used to always tell y'all in school, the thriving metropolis of Honey Path, South Carolina, without a McDonald's. <laughs> uh, but now it was a little two stoplight town, um, definitely some levels of country living. Uh, raised with my grandparents, stayed with my grandparents until we were eight years old. And we moved out, we only moved nine minutes away walking. So I definitely was fortunate enough in that little small town to go up in a village, per se. Uh, my grandmother would take me to church every Sunday because the tail end of that era where other people could kind of correct you uh, if you wasn't doing right. I didn't necessarily have anybody else, you know, spanked or anything like that. Like my, my, my mom and my aunt, they went through that in that era, in the, you know, in the South or whatever, but I still caught the tail end of having to be respectful, you know, all others and everybody that poured into me in a sense, helped me quote unquote, escape the, the small town. Cause where I'm from a lot of people, kind of lived there all their lives, stayed there all their lives. When I say the town small, so small that typically whoever you start school with in the first grade, that's when you will graduate with in the in the twelfth grade to a certain extent. 
Uh, well, I, I could also relate to the fact that in my where I grew up, it was one stoplight town. Um, although this little city I grew up in has grown to now it's over a hundred thousand people. Um, but I always ask people, man, are, were you um, high class, middle class, low class, or no class? Like, what level of living were you when you were coming up? Uh, we was, I would say, low, poor, maybe to a certain extent, but not, you know, understandably not noticeable because of the village. Uh, you know, I, I def, and I would just say, I wouldn't, I don't know if you consider low class, like I didn't go without meals. You know okay. what I mean? But you know, you know, were there people in my my community, some people, you know, it was to that, it was to that degree. You could tell that there was, you know, was an issue. I think I may have been hungry twice in my life as a kid. So I don't, you know, and I, and I help people, you know, currently that, that are homeless and without food. So I definitely have never experienced it to that degree. Right. Um, no, it's just, it's just try to get a feel. And, um, and when you were growing oh, yeah, up, absolutely. what was it like um, being in the Smith household? Were you, did you play any sports? Um, what was, what was your academic, uh, life like that, you know, was that a big emphasis for you and your family growing up? Uh, absolutely. Um, uh, definitely, uh, in a sense, you know, again, small town living, hoping to, uh, the aspiration for anybody to a certain extent is we always talk about leaving that small town cause there's not much there. So, um, I was definitely noted for being, uh, re- relatively intelligent and I was athletically inclined as well. So, I started out playing football in, at the age of seven, ended up having a little basketball and track career through high school, uh, but definitely was noted for my academic ability. And I actually ended up going into student council about a fifth grade. Oh, wow. And, you know, not only, yeah, you know, not only um, being, you know, doing, doing, being, and I guess, I don't know if you are familiar with this or whatever, but the American school system in the past used to have track. Right. So I was in that higher academic track, you know, even from a young age, just from the, you know having that ability um, to read. Because thankfully, my mother read to me. She was a young mother, uh, you know, in a sense, trying to raise me on her own with the help of my grandparents, and she, she always read to me. So I think it ended up uh, playing out very well for me. And so I was in that quote unquote higher track. And where I'm from in, in South Carolina, uh, I was the only black in my class until about the maybe fourth grade. Yeah, I was uh, often the the only black person in my class. So I can totally relate to that. I mean, that for me was pretty much all the way right through high school. So I can understand that. Um, and, and then you, we met at the air force Academy. So what motivated you to, was there like a particular thing you remember when you were young or a particular story you could tell them it motivated you to say, man, I want to go this route of going to a military Academy. Yeah, it's actually a, a very unique and funny story. Because I remember uh, my junior year, um, sitting around with a couple of my childhood friends in our little small town under a stoplight. That was kind of a thing, hang out under the lights or whatever. And I remember particularly sitting around with three friends. And I, it was my junior year in high school. And we all had these aspirations, you know, saying, well, what's your aspiration after high school? And my three friends, they were all had aspirations. One wanted to go into the Air Force. One wanted to go into the National Guard. And one wanted to go into the army. Myself, I was like, "Heck no! I'm there's no way I'm ever going in the military." If they asked me to go into the military, I'd go to Canada. I, I literally <laughs> remember, remember this conversation as a junior in high school, and ironically, I was the only one that ended up in the military. Uh, you know, a year and a half later, whatever, when that conversation, and so basically, what happened there. Um, 
I was fortunate enough to have a, a great uncle who was a liaison officer for the Air Force Academy. And, um, and so my, my father, obviously having a relationship, my father was definitely um, heavy in my life about my high school years or whatever. I would go up there on the weekends and see him. And so I was trying to get into college or whatever. And I had these aspirations of, you know, possibly getting an academic and an athletic scholarship, whether right. it be football or track or whatever. I love sports. And at the time, it seemed like track, based on my coach, was probably more my route. And then, unfortunately, um, I ended up having a motorcycle accident. My tickets, uh, my sophomore year, I can't remember which year it was. But either way, I had the motorcycle accident and broke my foot, and it took away a lot of my speed. Oh, okay. And so, yeah, so that kind of ruined the aspirations of a, 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 a possible track scholarship or any other type of scholarship. Uh, and I kind of got back up to speed by my senior year, but never, like, never captured all my speed back. Right. Um, you know, just from healing from the broken foot. It was definitely my junior year. Um, but anyway, and so it kind of changed a lot for me. And I remember my mother even coming to me to say, you know, after I broke my foot, she was like, you're not be able to go to school. Um, you know, and she was just saying, based on her finances, that's not an option for you. Right. And, you know, I remember being, yeah, I remember being very upset. I remember with a broken foot. And I was, you know, sitting with my mother like, I'm going to school. You know what I mean? I was mad when she told me that. You know what I mean? She was just, you know, just from all she knew and not having any finances, you know, never set inside, you know, anything for that or not being able to. She was just like, well, I don't know how you're going to go if you don't get that scholarship money. Mm-hmm. You know, that was her thought. And I was just like, I'm going, I'm going. This is my junior year. The academy's still not in my, you know, horizons at this moment. You know, because of my great uncles, my my dad reached out and was kind of like, hey, do it at me. Like, Hey, you might want to put this on your radar. Right. So I look into it, yeah, read through the manual or whatever. And I'm like, free school. My mom said I can't go to school. Free school. Right. Okay. Three ninety nine, the best price available. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, free school. I know I said I would never go into the military, but free school. <laughs> That's hard to turn down. So at that point, it became very pointed, um, you know what I mean, like as an option, like at least, you know, get the option on the table. And um, and then having the great uncle as a liaison officer um, helping too. So, boy, oh, wow. I really got concentrated. Yeah, yeah. Because he would, you know, he was help. you know, that was kind of something he had done as a former military member as well. So he would help people get into school anyway. So having him kind of give me that insight. And so I just got real focused on, you know, trying to get the grade. Didn't quite get the grades, but here's the reality. Based on his relationship, I was able to get to the preparatory school, which is, um, if you're familiar with, you know, the preparatory right. school, people that are kind of right below what it takes to get directly in, but whatever extenuating circumstances, a lot of times, a lot of, you know, a lot of the athletes that get that option, they get to get directly in, but they also get that option to people that are not necessarily that they're looking for for the academy looking for for sports. So, um, you know, based on the relationship, I was one of those um, people that were able to get in that they necessarily weren't looking for for sports, but based on my uncle's relationship, they gave me a shot to go to the prep school. Yeah, no, that's that's really cool, man. So it was like, you know, what do they call it? Necessity is the mother of invention, and we needed that uh, that school to be funded. So it it came through. It was kind of like that for me, too, my... My sister, I, I hadn't heard of the academy. I didn't even know it was an option. Like 
I, I just thought when I read it in the history books, it was just some place where people went to go shoot guns. I know a couple of presidents went there, but um, but then we had a liaison officer come to our school. She heard about it and went. As you know, she was you know a year ahead of you, and then I went right behind her. And and like you said, my when my when I, I remember coming back, I think I've said before, my dad, I was like, "What are you gonna do with that money that you have for me for college?" He's like, "What money are you talking about?" Um, you know, it's a good thing you got in for free. You know. <laughs> so, what was the thing you think once you got to the academy? Like, what was it in you that you think? Because, because you know, like something like twenty five percent of the people don't make it through um, for whatever right. reason. But you you successfully graduated and got through that. What was it? Do you think that enabled you to succeed? What characteristics about yourself were most important to be successful? Make it through the academy. Uh, I think I'm, I'm, I still had this this as a part of me. I'm kind of too hard headed to quit, right? <laughs> um, kind of by nature, and you know, the academy wasn't an easy um, thing to navigate for me or whatever. I, I definitely, I actually, you know, was facing the board to be out because academics, to be honest with you, was very tough uh, for me. Come. You know, I'll say partly coming from my background again, because even with, again, having academic, uh, being academically highlighted in high, all the way through high school to a certain extent, um, I will say I didn't necessarily develop, one, the best habits, and two, uh, not necessarily didn't take all the classes that male would have helped me be prepared for a, a, a school that's as tough as the academy. I, I think I had those options to take a few of those classes. Like, for example, I was specifically remember my junior year, my chemistry teacher saying, if you take go to school and take um, freshman chemistry, you will fail if you don't take advanced placement chemistry in high school. Right. And I remember thinking to myself, and again, the academy wasn't on my radar at this point. So I had already, because I was already researching school, kind of advanced of, in advance of even my classmates. I, went, I was really into trying to find a place to go to school. So I'd already reached my school and realized I can take biology, so I don't even, I don't want to take AP chemistry. I'm not taking it. So I laughed at her. Show him, show him. <laughs> sure enough, at the academy, chemistry is not an option. I sure enough <laughs> failed it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Literally, I failed chemistry. And at the time, uh, being in our class, we were the last class that was faced with this. And, and I think it's because so many of us did that. Um, but at the time, the academy actually crammed two semesters of of work into one semester with their chemistry class. And so it actually counted as six hours. Wow. So it was like that F was two two Fs. Oh. And we were the last class. Yeah, we were the last class to go through that. They actually started spreading chemistry out. You, you might not even, you probably don't remember because you were a couple, like a year behind me. I think, right. Or maybe two years behind me. But, but yeah, so it was a full year by the time y'all came. But we were the last class to have it as, six hours in once. So basically, yeah, basically I only had a couple classes against it. And that, um, that two F had me with a 1.21, but again, I'm too stubborn to quit, but it right. gave me a shot. And thanks to my friends, I somehow got out of that place. Well, I, I really appreciate you myself and on behalf of everyone that came after y'all for jacking it up so much. So we didn't have to cram all that chemistry in. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you are appreciated, brother. Because when I got to, you know what I mean? Like, I had never get seen, you know, I had never gotten, I think I had got one C or two C. Well, nah, I wouldn't say that. But 
I only had a few seasons in my high school career. You know what I mean? Right. So to see the F there was, you know, devastating, but I still didn't have a concept of how it worked in college. And basically somebody was like, I was like, well, I still don't get why I, why I got a 1.21. And that's when somebody was breaking down, bro. That's, that's a, that's two F. Right. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> well, what, so, so like what pushed you, like you're, you have that stubbornness to push you through. Um, and, and then you said, thanks to you and your friends, what was it your friends did to help you navigate through it and, and feel like, man, I could make it and then ultimately navigate your way through that. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I had already, I had started playing football, uh, walked onto the football team at the prep school or whatever. And, you know, I was doing decent with that. And, um, the academy, you know, again, trying to make sure that they're keeping people that they want in the military. So they gave you an opportunity to say, all right, you're doing pretty bad here. Uh, right now we're going to let you go unless you can prove to us that you're somebody worthy of keeping. So you go through an academic board. And so basically, it, you know, it wasn't just me and having been to the prep school, there were other, as we are called, preppies who were in the same boat as me. And so we all kind of band together to say, all right, we're going to do our best to explain to the board that, you know, how we're going to overcome the setback to be able to stay at school. And so it was just because so many of my friends, unfortunately, was in the same boat, having similar backgrounds. And, and as I say backgrounds, I'm just talking about um, just the idea of, every high school isn't preparing every kid to go to the most strenuous schools. And, right. and, and you know, so this is just calling it, a, you know, this is a reality. So with that, with that said, several of my friends were in the same boat. So we all got together and, you know, let's be honest. Since I had walked up to the football team or whatever, the football team is real good at saying, look, let's look out for our athletes who are coming from these type of backgrounds. That's, you know, put out influence and saying, give them another chance. So I had a combination of my friends and even the football uh, team or whatever kind of coming up, stepping up on our behalf and say, look, we want to try to keep, 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 keep these kids around. And I told the board that day that, that I would never be in there again because we've seen the academy, some people go through two, 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 two or three types of different boards. So I only went through that one and I never was in that room again. And I really, um, based on the help of, um, of a, I guess maybe a, I would call him a mentor, maybe, uh, showing me how to kind of navigate that board. I, in turn, helped a lot of people my next three years navigate any board that they went through. Uh, you know, I always kind of had that, 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 that lawyer aspect or whatever. So I, I, I kind of pulled it off with the board and I started showing other people how to survive those boards if they got themselves in that situation. Yeah. So I, that's, that's, I think we'll see that's a theme for your life that once you learn something, you turn around and help somebody else do better themselves, you know, and offer everything you have. So I, uh, I know that's a theme for you. So you got out of the air force Academy and went to the air force. Um, did, what was your air force experience life? Uh, like, uh, I ended up being a supply officer, and again, the, uh, navigating the academy wasn't easy for me or whatever, so I was definitely uh, not necessarily academically re- high, uh, highlighted to the extent that I could pick what I wanted or whatever, so, so I'm going into uh, as a supply officer. My number one concern to be honest to teach you was to get out of that cold weather, so I had all <laughs> seven <laughs> all seven Air Force bases uh, on my particular choice, and so my number one concern was, you know, 
was everywhere and wasn't giving out this cold weather. Right. And I still don't know to this day, had they put me in a cold weather location, <laughs> would I be being interviewed by right now? <laughs> I was still, I still had some of that go to Canada in me. <laughs> I graduated in the academy, and that was just because I hated that cold weather out there being right. a Philly boy. So, hey, but it's so cold in Canada said, too, um, man. You had to go to like hey, on the well, Cuba or something time, like that. I'm just saying, I was, yeah, I was maybe at the time I probably figured out Canada wouldn't have been the spot, but just outside these borders, you know what I'm saying? Like, right. AWOL was going to be an issue. If Another cold. <laughs> what where did you end up? What, what place did you get so to? So I ended up actually so I ended up picking out of, I ended up getting to uh, South Carolina about two oh. and a half hours where I was visiting from, which was, was super cool. And um and so yeah, that so I ended up now the first year I was able to stay and actually which is funny, considering when I tell you my background of never wanting to be in the military and getting into the academy, but as you said, as a theme of my life turning around and learn, you know, loving to pass along anything that I learned almost as quick as I get it. Uh, the first year, I actually was able to uh, turn around and recruit for the Apples Academy, the Minority, minority Enrollment um, Office or whatever. Right. So that was definitely um, a great year being able to go to the South and teach. Because I was able to the South of my region. So I was able to go and teach all these other people who had never heard of the Academy, who were like myself, didn't even know it was an option. And so it was beautiful to be able to go around the South, not only um, telling people about the Academy, but I always, I even took that time to just even give, in my mind, I was giving the students just a better way to look at going to college in general. You know what I mean? Like right. Obviously, I needed to meet my numbers and get the people in that I needed to get in. Uh, but I definitely looked at that opportunity going all over the South, just kind of because one thing I would do is when I would go to those high schools, I would always, which, you know, they encouraged this, so it's not like I want to make it like it's my own idea, but I definitely was one of the ones that did it probably more than some of the other people in the, um, in the office with this. I would always particularly find a middle school or two in addition to the schools I had to go to so that I could just incite the, the incentive to, you know, a lot of children who were in areas that didn't have that aspiration to hopefully incite that aspiration in them. So it was always bigger than even the academy for me as far as giving back to, you know, the idea of education for our children. And that always mattered to me even at that time. Yeah. So that was my first year. So let me say that. And then I ended up being a supply officer for about three years. And then I ended my career um, back in actually being a support for recruiters. And that was really just based on um, knowing that I was going to get out do my six years and get out. So I just end up being able to stay in South Carolina because I knew that I was getting out after my six years. Right. Yeah. So, so you did uh, that job as implied, then you did the recruiting piece out in South Carolina and then you were done with the air force. Um, Correct. So what was next for you? What, like as you were getting ready to get out, what was it overall that you thought you wanted to do? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's cool. Um, so at the academy, and this is part of the reason that helped me even select the academy back when I was, you know, my dad was just saying, hey, you might want to look at this. And so going through that thing, I um, had, when I was youth, and I got to jump back to my youth real quick. So uh, in the eighth grade, I came across the autobiography of Malcolm X and the book changed my life. And, and Malcolm was like an a idol of mine and like yourself. I wanted to be a lawyer because that was something that 
you know, he talked so an aspiration of his that in a sense, you know, one of the teachers kind of pushed him away from, but that was an aspiration of his in his book. And so I always had this idea that I would want to be a lawyer. And right. so at the academy, I ended up being a legal studies major thinking, oh man, this is the best path in the world. Like no other school even has a legal studies undergrad, you know, in advance of going into law school. So in my mind as a high school, I was like, okay, take that, take that, um, deg- you know, get that degree, go into the Air Force as a lawyer and then come out and be, you know, better prepared for being what I ultimately wanted to be was a civilian lawyer. And my junior year at the academy, already a legal studies major, I ended up finding out from my advisors that that that's not a favorable path in the civilian world. So it really kind of messed me up because I didn't know, you know, I just did that. I just had that concept in my mind that, hey, legal studies major, lawyer in the military, come out. And the advisors said, you know, we said they, we have a lot of lawyers, we have lawyers that do it, but it's not a common path because um, I, and I, at the time, I was just thought of, you know, working for a law firm, and it was explaining to me that law firms like to get people who have not practiced any type of law, specifically military law, so they can kind of mold them into what they want. Mm. And so it's not necessarily to your advantage having practiced, you know, law in the military. So that was a, a real big balloon bust for me or whatever. I was already in the major, and I was still open to going to law school because I loved that field. Um, I even... Um, took the LSAT at one point while I was in the military. The other situation, I didn't do very well and, you know, on it or whatever. But it always was in the back of my brain, like, this ain't the path I thought it was going to be. It never left me, um, you know what I mean, in my junior year when they kind of explained that to me. Now, some people, again, you know, we definitely know people who have taken that path, I guess. But I guess I didn't see it like that. I didn't see it like, wow, this is not. It just came, I don't know if that makes sense, but it just really changed. No, it is. Like that that point in life, whenever you're looking for advice and influence of where to go and somebody who you think is giving you their best advice and knows what they're talking about tells you one way, it's going to divert you one way or the other. I mean, my academic advisor said the best school he went to was UCLA. So my whole move was to go to Los Angeles to go to the business school at UCLA. And I applied twice, didn't get it. I ended up going to USC. But... I, I was influenced in the same way. Like, okay, I respect this guy. I know he knows what he's saying. So I could see how it could influence you. But if it's, that's for me, it was on the positive for you. Sound like it was on the negative side. Like, well, he kind of just undermined, yeah, or shot down all the dreams you right, had. Right, right, right. And the thing is, he had been very helpful, you know what I mean? Like getting me through them, them early years and making sure I was in the, you know, the, the class, the, like the engineering classes, which I hated because I wasn't any good at them. He spread them out. It just kind of helped me navigate. So, so I know he had good intentions, right. and he was and he was comparing all the other lawyers who were in the in the um in that in that in that uh, field at the school. He was just basically showing how how little it happens based on the things he had explained to me. Right. And so, yeah, definitely. Again, um, you know, and I remember my my senior year saying to him. I don't even know if I'm going to go in this career field. And I remember him and another particular advisor saying, nah, you're going to practice. And the reason they felt that way is because my, my academics were, were good within the, in the, in the major, but not, you know, outside of the major. So I just only had a, you know, like a 2.4. But the reason they said nah is because 
they loved how I handled myself within the maze. Right. You know what I mean? They felt like like I wasn't cookie cutter in comparison to many other people in the major. And they was like, nah, you're built to be a lawyer. Like they just, just they just got, you know what I'm saying? So they were saying that as an encouragement. I was right. just kind of like, I don't know if I'm going to do it. And they were like, nah, you know what I'm saying? They, they meant that. They were just like, nah, you're going to practice. Because they just thought it was in my nature. But to be honest with you, it never left me. And then when I did so bad on the LSAT, I definitely didn't have any inspiration to go down that path. And plus, I now I'm answering your question after the military. Plus, I found another uh, inspiration, which which is what I ended up doing once I got out of the military. Um, I think you, you may remember this, you may recall this, but very seldom could you find me at the academy without earphones. Oh, on. yeah. And, and this is before like iPhones with- and all that stuff. I'm like, this dude has always got something on his head. Right, right, right. Because my first love in life up until that point had always been music. Uh, being where I, where I'm from, I didn't have any aspirations to go into music. Even though I, um, you know, even though I sung in little choirs and stuff in high school, and you may recall, um, or what is it, one common voice or whatever, I oh, managed yeah. them. You know what I mean? Because I had an ear for music. Like music was always my first love, and you know, I would even take chances and put the earphones on when I wasn't supposed to. I mean, like, that's not, music was everything for me. Right. And so... OCV. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, one time a voice. And so I had m- one of my best friends who had always, I thought, had the talent to be in, in had, you know, to have a rap career or whatever. So, you know, in my time away from South Carolina, I would always keep up with him. He had went to Atlanta, and he was trying to get in and so I would always be like, hey, how, you know, how's it going? How's how's it going? Because as much as I love music, I was like, he's just as talented as everybody I already spend money on. And so by me being in South Carolina, I would when I wanted to go hang out, I would go to Atlanta and see him. And he was starting to make a little leeway. And then the typical things within the music industry, jealousy and the money and all this kind of stuff. And so I was like, man, I'll, I'll get behind you. And at this point. Um, thanks to, uh, you know, Mark Rangers and other friends. I, you know, did pretty decent with saving my money. Yeah, my mother was always a saver, so I at least knew how to save money or right. whatever and, you know, that kind of stuff. And so I had already saved up a decent amount of money, in, you know, in my years, my five or six years in the, in the military. And I was like, brother, I'll get behind you since you're having these issues uh, amongst the group that you're with or who's getting behind you. So I'll get behind you. And and at the time, I was just thinking, you know, I'll be glad because I'll be glad to be part of this industry any way that I can. And I just thought I would, you know, throw some money and, you know, help them out. And so when I would go down there to see what how's it going, he wasn't getting a lot of help. And so loving music the way I did, I was like, okay, if I'm going to put my money up, then I'm going to help market it. I'm going to help, you know, do all this kind of stuff. So I started platooning between, you know, knowing that I was getting out coming back doing, you know, my military stuff, but I would go to Atlanta constantly trying to, you know, help him. And then, so, um, taking that LSAT, maybe about less than a year before getting out, not doing too well on it. And I was like, man, I love music. I want to see my boy make it. And I'm, you know, I'm just a real loyal person or whatever. So it was just like, man, I believe in this dude. I'm going to get out and, and I got my money saved up. So I'm going to get up and put it all into him. Right. And see, if, if if my man, if we can if we can pull and navigate this thing, man, because he clearly got the talent. Like that's how I felt. And so 
you know, lo and behold, that's what I ended up doing. Really, you know, very surprising considering I had a military, you know, career. My dad was like, what the heck are you doing? Right. Um, you know what I mean? Um, my mother ended up being supportive, which was pretty decent because I didn't expect that. Um, not so much not, you know, I mean, that's not, I mean, her nature, you know, that's her mother's nature anyway, to be supportive, you know what I mean? But after um, you've been to the like, academy, well, they might, you know, you might be worried that she'd be like, maybe respond like your dad did, like, maybe you could do something more conservative or something like that, I'm sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was just like, you know, went to the academy and you want to do what? <laughs> and so she was, but she was very supportive of you. Yeah, yeah, my mom was, I'm saying, but everybody else was like, what you doing? Yeah, like so, I actually remember that time, man, and Mm -hmm. I, I, um, I was one of those people, man, and for me, it was courageous to do that. But ultimately, when I got out, I ended up doing an entrepreneurial career too in the real estate business. So you know, and same with Mark. Mark ended up doing an entrepreneurial career with financial services. Mm So you were doing it, and and the music business just sounds probably more risky because all everything we've seen in the movies and. You know, everybody knows well, somebody who wants to be a, music, it definitely a musician. Is. Mm-hmm. So how did it go, though? Yeah. What was the experience like while you were doing it? Yeah. So, um, so yeah, man, I definitely I put, you know, put my eggs in that bell. Um, at one point, like I said, anyway, even you say this about the LSAT. So, again, even the LSAT concept was, all right, well, I'm not going to go practice law the way I thought I was as a kid. You know, I'll get it and become an entertainment lawyer and help my boy out that way. Right. You feel me? So that was, so to be honest, it was still, you know, it was like, oh man, because what happened for me was at that point in my life, as much as I love music, where I was from, I never had a, necessarily a concept of how I could be in it outside of being an artist, which I knew I wouldn't have that talent. To be honest with you, the same best friend I'm talking about, um, we literally, Tried to help, tried to help him get a career way back then from my small town. I literally remember packaging up a demo tape and sending it to the source. And the only reason why I'm from, we knew about the source, is because I had went on a trip and saw this rap magazine. Because where I'm from, that rap magazine didn't wasn't distributed. Right. And so I saw it, never forgot it. And so when he was trying, I, I looked it up and figured out how to send their little demo tape in a little brown bag. We always laugh about it, but we sent it up there. And, never heard anything or whatever. They got a little record playing on, on the radio back then. So I was involved with this best friend really from his very beginning, hoping to see him make it. So really it was, it was a full circle all these years later right. to come back and say, I want to now help this same friend. You know, cause I want to get that backdrop. And so, so like you've been doing it for a minute another, and now you could do it more professionally. Yeah. It sounds like. Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. Cause I was always wanting to see, this friend making whatever he was with, a, with another one of our good friends at the time and at this point he was solo so you were and saying so when y'all were kids like, is whenever you try to send a, a, a mixtape to the source magazine yeah. and all that okay okay that's real yeah, cool absolutely yeah super cool because what because what happened was i think i think we may have released his first cd before i got out if i remember correctly so okay. that's probably what you remember yeah is that i was you know trying to push him and tell everybody about him and that kind of thing yeah. And, um, but I, at the time, I don't think I was locked in and going full in as much as I was just being supportive. Right. And then what ended up happening was, you know, once the LSAT came back and, you know, felt like I didn't have a type of score that made that a real option. And what I saw in my life was that m- my passion was actually more for the music now than the legal. The legal was kind of, I had always said I was going to do it. So I think that played a role in, you know, maybe, I mean, even my preparation for the LSAT, you know, you know, I can admit wasn't 
probably what it should have been. And the reality for me and most of my life is I really do best in what I'm passionate, passionate in, right. uh, you know, to, to a certain extent. And I think I lost that passion really since that first bubble burst mm. as a junior. You know what I mean? Like it yep. just kept waning, but I just kind of, at the time, told myself I was going to stay on that path. That's what I'd always said. But my passion was definitely leaving. And I saw, found so much passion with the time that I was helping him promote that CD. That I was like, man, this is what I feel like doing. This is what I want to do. And here's the statement in my life that made me, as you say, take that courageous step Yeah, to jump into that, to the music business of all businesses. So just before you go into it, before you go into the business, I'm curious, do you ever look back and think, um, and this is without, you know, everyone having heard the rest of your life story, but I'm just curious if you ever look back and think, um, I wonder what would happen if I'd have been a lawyer. No, I never, it's never crossed my mind. Okay. No, that's cool. I, you I seem was. like the kind of person that wouldn't do that. So I just was curious to see if that was the case. Yeah. So yeah. I guess I can think about that after this talk. I've never crossed my mind. I'm yeah. Here. No, that's cool. That's good though. Like that's a, that's a rare, you know, gift for people to just, Hey, this is what I'm committed to. I've decided now that I want to do this music business thing. Let me leave that past behind and, and, and press onto this. So, what what was it like being a, a music industry uh, professional at that time? Um, being outside looking in, and the music industry is a very small industry, so you're just basically trying to get into that inner core. And um, so I had maybe about $50,000 saved up, part of it I was going to live off of, put the rest of it, you know, towards, you know, helping my brother get into the industry. And this was right before people really was going, quote unquote, independent to the degree that it became the, the big thing when if you recall Master P coming along and making that real big. And, right. Um, so independent became the big thing, but we were we were right kind of before that was happening. So my our mindset was just get them noticed and get the record deal because you know before the independent thing became artists just wanted to get record deals, right? Right. So we were kind of catching the tail end of that, and so. um um, so as the independent thing started, we were like, okay, maybe that's the, you know, that's the route too. But again, we were kind of willing to kind of whatever works, you know what I mean? Like we'll do something on our own, but ultimately we, we want to get noticed and, and get in front of some, some opportunities to have a deal. And so, um, but you say, well, you know, what was it like coming down here? We were literally the good, one of the good things was if you think about hip hop, because you know, I had a hip hop artist. And so if you think about hip hop, it was kind of circled out of New York and it went to the West Coast. So I got out in 90, I'm sorry, I got out in 2003. And so by this point, everything had circled back to the South. So, you know, that was another thing that said, this is a favorable thing. I got a passion for it. And, it, and Atlanta was starting to be, kind of become the hub. And, you know, the South was becoming the hub of where hip hop was focused. Right. And so I, that looked like a great opportunity you know, to try to jump in, man. And so um, I had read everybody's stories from top to bottom, you know, from Matthew to Jay-Z. I always had that interest anyway. I kept up with the music industry. And, you you know, you said that was my first love. I knew everything that was coming out. I knew if, you know, you want to know what's coming out, just call Smith and he's going to tell you. You know what I mean? You was a source magazine. Exactly. For all y'all, y'all know, you know what I mean? Cause that's, I listen, I listen to everything. I, you know, I did that even while I did Academy Music and everything. Right. And so anyway, um, you know, having studied what they did. So the goal was 
and the goal was, you know, can I do part of what they did to get to get noticed? And what I quickly found out that fifty thousand dollars is no money yeah. in music industry. Yeah. Not at this time anyway. Like back then there was no like YouTube and SoundCloud and all that stuff yet. No, exactly. You know what I mean? But you know, so as much as I researched their life stories and things of that nature, there was no numbers out there. Yeah. To let you know that, you know, you 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 coming in here with a dollar, bro. You coming, you trying to get into this industry with one dollar. Right. Because that's what it was the equivalent of. But you know, plus you but also, you know, one, he had the talent. You know, I definitely got the no quit in me. So it was an idea of saying, you know, put this together. I believe in them. And, you know, we'll we'll try to figure it out, which is kind of probably how a lot of people, you know, jump in. But from the other people, friends that we knew, because there was a lot of people trying to get into that industry, especially me being able to go to Atlanta. So I definitely knew a whole bunch of people trying to get into the industry. In, in my mind, that 50000 was a head start of what we saw them doing. Right, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, we felt like we were fully ahead of, as far as, you know the backing, and again, and then again, it wasn't even. And to be honest with you, to be real fair with you, as we were setting up the the, the label, label that we had a real opportunity to, to get more money than that. We have people that were willing to invest based on what we had done with the with his first CD. Right. So I was getting out of the military with the idea of taking on a few other investors that was going to put up, you know, their money. So to be honest with you, um, TQ, I. I that fifty thousand ended up what ended up being what I had. But to be honest with you, the plan that I set up, I thought I was going to get out of the military and have you know maybe two two hundred thousand. Right. Yeah. Based on all the talks and all the things I set up before getting out, and one of the you know just to you know not to make a, not to even get into the story too much, but one of the other person that was going to be part of our label, he pulled out mm. and he changed the value of our record label, and so I had to go back to those investors who were ready to sign checks. You feel me? They were ready to sign yeah. and say, well, our company is worth this now because basically it was, I was doing the marketing, obviously the artist was the talent, the other guy had a majority of the equipment we were using to kind of say, hey, you know, when we we're going to the investors, like, this is how we're going to do this. Right. Well, it was, we're valued at this now, so, we're, you know, what will you give us? And so at this point, I'm out, having to look for no other work because this plan is in place and I get hit with that within a month of being out. Mm-hmm. And so it was a huge, huge issue. How did you deal with it? My stubbornness came through just from the standpoint of, you know, I, I, to be honest with you, had I known that, wouldn't have taken that path. Mm. Had I, you know what I'm saying? Had I known that was going to happen. Yeah. Or, you know what I mean? Because like, cause, cause while we're setting it up, dudes on board. The investors are ready. So that made me feel confident that I was doing the right thing. Right. I mean, I'm committed to, you know, at least I got myself set up to where I don't have to, you know, necessarily work for, you know, because I, I, I told my boy, I said, I'm, I'm going to take a year off to, to do everything I can for you, and then I'll get back into the, you know, a job while still pushing you. Now, we didn't expect to make it in a year, but right. we, we thought having, you know, me having 100% time to do all the other stuff that all these other artists that, in a sense, we were competing with didn't get. You know what I mean? So we thought that that would set us up to eventually get noticed, even if it was, you know, a few years down the line. It give but you a I good start. You know, that, right, right, right. So it's what we thought we had to our advantage. We thought we had these investors to our advantage. Me having the time, he was still working and performing, but we thought all this together was a better start. 
So what happened? Like a- after you took that left turn, what did it? What was the difference? Yeah. Well, so we had to really recreate the whole business plan of what we expected to do for him. You know what I mean? Like we couldn't do any of our original plans, but I still stayed again. Um, you know, moved in with him or whatever. So we were living in a minimum way. Had the studio inside the apartment, that kind of stuff. And um, so what I said was, well, since I'm still prepared not to work for a year, I'm still going to put in the time. But now I'm going to have to put in the time on this this less, you know, a lot different plan than what we originally planned. Right. And again, I mean, I, and then when I say say this plan, it's not like in the music industry I can go follow somebody's blueprint per se. You know, like some businesses there's you know blueprints to a certain extent you can kind of copy a model. So it's not, it's not, that doesn't, you know, to be honest with you, it doesn't, just even having more money doesn't guarantee that that plan wouldn't work either. We just made another plan, obviously on a much lower scale, but you know what I mean? And um, so it's so I still kept the same commitment, which was to, you know, spend my time trying to, you know, push, push my artists, you know, for a year. So that year took place. I ended up going at first, I think working for DHL. And eventually I moved into management of the morning doc, you know, for a period of time or whatever, with the idea of still helping my artists make it. But then we still, so basically we stuck with the, I wouldn't work for a year, but that year was definitely a lot different based on having a lot less money than we originally expected to. So how long did you hang with it? Like, um, did, did what ended up ultimately happening with the artists? Yeah. Um, so we did it. We, we kept at it for about three years. Uh, we definitely did the chilling circuit, running all over the South, doing shows and things of that nature. And um, short version of you know what happened, my um, brother ended up having to take care of his um, his son, like you know basically take his son in. And um, so obviously that became a priority, you know, just being the type of you know brother that we were, you know, at the cabin that was always important, you know, to us. And so, you know, I only ran in a circle of people that were like that. And so when you had to take that on, that became a priority and that was understandable. Now, myself still loving the music industry, I feel based on the relationship I made, I, I spent a little time hoping to maybe get in another thing because I still love music. Like as an executive or something like that? Yeah, it wasn't just getting in, whether it was going to a label and working in promotions. Like, I really just still, I love music so much, I just wanted to get in the industry anywhere that I could. Right. The reality was, I had a friend who had been in the industry for 14 years, still a great friend of mine to this day. And she basically hit me with reality. She was like, I understand that this is your love, I understand this is your passion. And at the time, that's when Napster and stuff was, you know, really um, changing the way the industry was going and left record labels were downsizing. And she just basically hit me with the reality check to say, look, I, I got friends that have already been in the industry for 20, you know, 15 years. They're getting let go. So why would you think that you're able to get in right now mm. when they're not letting people in? Right. So that was the reality check that, that finally closed the deal because, of, you know, as a way as I understood, my boy had to take care of his son, which was obviously a priority. I still had a love for, because I got the bug, you know what I mean? Because I was, I was always on the outside looking in, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm, you know, rubbing elbows with the people that people knew, you know, whether it was, you know, Rick Ross, you know, that kind of thing or whatever, because I ended up getting a job with one of the um, very important independent uh, record stores here in Atlanta. And so by having that relationship, I was making all kinds of relationships. So, you know, I always felt like I was on the verge 
And I helped with some, you know, some major marketing or some major artists. So what about uh, what was next for you then? Like you, you got this information from your friend who said, Hey, this, this is, this probably not going to happen for you. What did that, what did you move on to from there? So I ended up going to uh, lifetime fitness uh, in sales, you know, best selling membership, which is an exclusive fitness club where, you know, we were selling 60 and $70 a month gym membership. So I never thought that quite possible, but I definitely got good at figuring out, you know, how to do that or whatever. So I did right. that. Um, yeah. Coming once I kind of fed. And at the time I enjoyed fitness too. So I always wanted to try to do something that I was related to and had a passion for. Sure. And so it was kind of like, all right, well, you know, let me help people get fit. And this particular exclusive club had a real decent corporate structure. And I was like, well, hey, I could go in there and if I do well enough, the career path was I might be a general manager for one of these huge fitness clubs that you're familiar with and whatever. So I kind of gave up my dream, still had a little passion for fitness and said, hey, here's a career path if I can do well in sales. So that's what I did after getting out of the music industry. Okay. And that little bit of passion, did it carry you through to to do well and enjoy what you were doing there? Um, for a while. Um, long story short there, and this is the biggest moment of my life. Um, I forgot I forgot how long I was there or whatever, but I ended up getting let go for something I didn't do, which was extremely, extremely difficult for me because mm. I always cared myself. Uh, with the level of uh, integrity that um, I don't know if I'm ever necessarily going to get over because I even remember my second manager. And if you know anything about sales, you know, said the sales industry is notorious for having nefarious people uh, in the sense of just trying to do anything to get a sale. Yeah. And I remember, yeah, I remember my second manager saying to me, and he at this point, he said he had been in the industry for 20 years. And I remember him saying to me, that um, he had never met anybody in the industry as honest as me. Hmm. And that same manager didn't step up to the plate when a, uh, an executive in the company suggested it. And I, you know, done something I hadn't done, and he still didn't step up and say, impossible. Hmm. And so that's the, yep, you know, long story. So he proved it. He there. proved that nobody have as much integrity as you because he couldn't even do it. I didn't even think of it that way. Never thought of it that way, but I definitely couldn't believe even, you know, you know, come to support, you know, support my peers were like, how, you know, like, I know, but, you know, like all the peers were like, because my same peers were the same ones saying, you know, as good as you do, you can do better if you do this stuff on the side. Right. They knew that I wouldn't. They knew that I wouldn't. So they were looking at him like, how are you not going to bat? Because y'all know he, you know, he do, you know, y'all know that's not an option. And, um, you know, whatever. But to, to give a little backdrop, let me give a little backdrop to that. And um, I think it's very important for what you do with breaking the glass. Is so when I got let, let go, I remember, and I'm you know I'm trying to fight it to a certain extent because you know I just want to be not you know let go for you know not for something I didn't do. And I remember going to the EEOC at the time. Mm. Um, yeah, the East, uh, and and so their first question was you know was this some type of racial related thing or whatever. And the reality was it wasn't. Okay. It, it was, but when I, but when I went to them seeking it, they was pushing, you know, super, super hard for that. And I, those honestly, no, you know, that's not the case based on seeing other people uh, get let go. You know, there wasn't, you know, black or anything like that or whatever. Right. But what it was, and this was a lesson learned after the fact. So what happened was I was able to do well 
but I wasn't necessarily fitting the company's culture. Mm. Like as far as, um, you know, basically what happens in sales, there's always these metrics that they'll try to use to kind of determine, you know, how you should, how you should do well as long as you follow these metrics. Right. And so unfortunately, which happens in a lot of sales jobs, some of those metrics don't help you sell anything, but if, you know, but the company hadn't quite figured that out yet, or they're just pushing it for show or for marketing purposes or whatever. And so basically they had this one metric that and this is what a lot of people would cheat on and I never would. And so they'd be like, well, you know, you need to get your metrics up. This is me despite being second or third every month in sales. Like, right. like why do I need to, you know, me being who I am, like, well, why do I need to even mess with that metric if I'm doing okay? And what I had to learn was because that's what they pushed, me doing it another way made what they're pushing not look appropriate. Yeah. So at that point, as, you know what I'm saying? Even though I was one of the, you know, decent salesmen doing very well, and I'm sitting here going, this is a, you know, I've never had a 100% commission job. So I'm sitting here going, as far as I looked at it, I'm like, well, this is my money. So why would I do what y'all saying to do and make less money? Like, that makes no sense to yeah. me. So I'm just looking at it from a straight, personal, logical, kind of naturally rebellious nature of it. This just doesn't make sense. I'm not doing it type thing, but I would. So what people would do is they would hide that they're not doing it. I would just be honest about it. And why would you care? Why would they care if you're making the money too? Is what probably you were thinking. I'm sure. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So I learned a hard lesson on, and then what helped me, what helped me learn it was after the fact, obviously, but I kind of became a target. So that's kind of what probably pushed the edge on them saying, Oh, you did this. Right. And it, you know what I mean? And it wasn't yeah. something I did. So it was a relationship that was probably going to end anyway. They just used, a, a BS reason, excuse, you know what I mean, just to, to kind of make it the final, final straw, or whatever. Right. And so, but what I, I remember reading after that time, I, was, I went into a great depression after that because mm. you know, again, I, I just couldn't get over the thing that I carried the most was my integrity. But that's the reason somebody's letting me go. I couldn't get over that. Yeah. Um, but I remember reading during that period um, about Disney and how everything that matters to them is culture only. Period. Point blank. And anybody that steps out inside their culture. That's not an option. You so read about, about who? Who about did you read Disney. that about? Uh, Disney. Okay. Disney. They're like the oh, Disney. Oh, Disney. Okay. Yeah, Disney. You know. Yeah, yeah. Disney. Like their companies are culture, everything. Right. So by reading about them, it finally hit me that that's why they had to let me go. Because mm. you know, while I was in it, it just didn't make sense. I'm like, I'm one of the top salesmen. You know what I mean? How? Yeah. You, how why? Why is all this pressure coming on me or whatever? And, um, but yeah, it was like reading about it after the fact just made me realize how important, you know, whether a company's right or wrong, their culture is everything, right or wrong, whether you agree with it or not. And so you kind of have to agree to stay with them. Any type of disagreement, you gotta they go. may let you go. And that can happen at, yeah, at any time. And I still don't agree with how they let me go. You know what I mean? There's no way I can agree with that. You know what I'm saying? Because, you know, because of that, what, you know, my real life experience was, when you let me go for that, they didn't, it was no unemployment, nothing. So I was mm. literally out I, there. I came out of that. Yeah. With nothing. I had to figure out how to do it. With nothing. I, so in two ways I can relate. One of them is, um, you know, I, for me, I was in the real estate business in the late two thousands, you know, or the, sorry, like the, you know, two thousand five, six, seven, eight. And they were a cast that would come to me and be like, hey, look, man, all we need is your license. Because I was a broker. 
Like, we just need your license and we'll pay you $500 a deal. You don't have to do nothing. Don't ask no questions. And I was like, that sounds a little, a little too good to be true. And, and these cats were coming around and cats that had no real marketable skills, you know, were coming around with brand new cars and bags full of clothes. And somebody even asked me to help them run an office where, you know, I was like, man, you can't just bring anybody in here to, you know, cause they wanted to bring people in that were these producers. And I was like, you just can't bring anybody in here to say anything. Long as it fits the real estate. I told them long as it fits the real estate law, you know, books and the Bible, I'm cool. And, and, but they, you know, they had a hard time making that happen. And ultimately the thing I had to fold because the leadership had no integrity, the whole business folded. So like you, it was like, and this is at the peak of 2008. So I'm coming off of that, Oh man! you know, with nothing, n- no place to go to, cause I had run the company and, and it's 2008 mm-hmm. in the real estate business where like, you know, nobody that like everybody was getting let go in the whole industry. They were shedding everything, everybody. Mm-hmm. So, and my, my wife mm-hmm. as well, she had the same situation. Every time she go to a company to work as a doctor, they're like, you gotta be have patients in and out diagnosed in three minutes, have them out and, you know, uh, written up in 10 minutes, have them out in 15 minutes. And she was like, well, I want to examine them and talk to them right. and treat them well. You know, right. and she just couldn't fit in a couple of places, just like you're talking about. They drummed her out. Because she didn't like I didn't think about it in this way that you're saying it now, but it's exactly what you're saying. She didn't fit the culture, mm-hmm. you know, and so one of the places she got fired from, they asked her, you know, all sorts of information can, you know, give us all your feedback. Tell us what you think should be better. So she wrote a long email. I was like, after being here for a couple of months, here's all the things that, you know, I think are could be better. Mm-hmm. And. And within a week, bro, you know, we've decided, listen, they told her we decided, you know, you were too, you're too good of a person for our company. So here's your paycheck. This is your last day, you know? And, 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 and now what they were saying outside of that wasn't, they weren't, they were dogging her behind her back, but it's just like you said, she didn't fit the culture. So I hear you, man. It affected her. It certainly affected me. Uh, as, us as well because you know she got let go from her gig for doing the right thing and so mm-hmm. you know how did, how did you end up dealing with that period of like you said depression and coming out of it mm-hmm. and I, I didn't know I was depressed I'm kind of too hard headed to know it um, I guess I got to look back on it and realize that I was but um, but what it did make me realize and this is you know to get into my passion um, I Along the way, out of all these stories I'm telling you, from years before that, I started doing these events in the barbershop called Mental Dialogue. I don't know what it wasn't even called it, Mental Dialogue Live Experience, but I called it Mental Dialogue, and I would have these community talks right. in the barbershop. And um, so that was growing, but when I decided to go to Lifetime Fitness during those years, that I worked too many hours, so I let that go completely. And once I got let go for something you know, I didn't do, it, the one thing that it made me, and this is kind of probably what carried me through, was I said, never again will I compromise something I love. Because I love doing those community talks. But, I, you know, I thought, let me get a corporate. Let me get this big thing first, and then I'll come back to it. That, you know, so once I got let go for something I didn't do, that's what it taught me was for me to be sane. Because I actually even had, um, I ended up getting, and I never get sick. I, like, literally never get sick. Right. Hardly ever. But during this period, I ended up catching shingles. 
at mm. a young age. Yeah. Only driven by stress. Right. Or whatever. I even worked. Yeah, I even worked for a couple of weeks before I even realized exactly what it was. You know what I'm saying? I'm hurting, but I literally never get sick. But I literally had shingles and was, you know, couldn't work for a couple of weeks. And then so, so many months later, got let go of doing something I didn't do. So what it did, how I dealt with it was saying, never again will I do anything that doesn't allow me to do something that I'm passionate about. Right. So at that point, I dedicated myself to not going into jobs that would require enough, so many hours that I couldn't at least get my barbershop talks mm. going. Yeah. So I was able to, you know, since I had time, I started those back. And then to be honest with you, it wasn't even my idea to necessarily start it back. It was uh, a friend of mine who kept saying, "Why don't you do these again?" Because I you talked so much about them, and it was my it was my barber, right? Ever. And so now that I had the time, I was like, "Y'all, y'all really want me to do it?" So, <laughs> yeah. So, so I that's how it started back, back up. And, yep, exactly how it started back up. Well, it, was it kind of like honest, a? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, what happened first was when I got let go, and now I'm looking for work. Now I'm telling everybody, you know, everybody and their mama, I'm looking for work. And now I get to go home and see my mom more because even when I was in the music industry, I was always trying to make that work. You know what I'm saying? I was trying to make my new stuff work. And you know, when I was working for Lifetime, working mad hours, so I wasn't going home as much. So, of course, now that I'm out of work, I'm going home. And uh, one of my aunts, uh, her, her, my aunt's pastor, he had bought a radio station. He was like, hey, that idea you used to do in the barbershop, you ever thought about doing it on the radio? Right, the right. the reality was, I had thought about it, but I, I wanted to get prepared and you know, talk better. If you recall one time at the Academy, you know, I ended up writing a speech for you to do for Martin Luther King because that's how much I don't like to get out and talk. I, yeah. I, I like writing it information. <laughs> I, you know, I ended up giving you the speech. Yeah. So I thought I had to do a lot more before I could ever be prepared for radio, but since the opportunity was there and I had the time, I said, okay, I'll take it. And um, that little radio station went over, went under in three months. Oh. But I had the bug. Oh, okay. So I literally came back to Atlanta and found somebody that had a, a internet show. I was, cause I was on the air for three months. Right. Literally on the air back in my town. I was driving to South Carolina two hours every Sunday to go do this little talk show. And, and I got the bug. So nice. I was like, okay, I'm going to keep this going. So that's how I got the show started. And then the barber, because of the show, said, well, why don't you bring those live events back? So before we go into it anymore, why don't you tell us what is the mental dialogue that turned into the mental dialogue live and that you did on the radio? What's the concept? What's your concept for it? All right. Basically, short version, uh, mental dialogue, the the answer is in the name itself. And then for me, it's being passionate about the African-American community specifically. basically improving the way that you think so that you act better yeah. mental dialogue yeah and the the other you the birth of it i've always wrote i always like to write i was a poet like to write and the birth of it we already spoke about mark ranger but i wrote this piece one time just just you know out of whatever i would get the passion i would write something and i'm writing this piece basically amazed at how immigrants could come to america and still see it as the land of opportunity but i felt like Myself and other African Americans in the country a lot did not see that same opportunity. We had this disdain, quote unquote, for America based on, you know, real life stuff, you know, and I could go into a lot of real life stuff and I don't have a lot of time, but, but, no, but take like, your time, man. Take not, your time. Yeah, but I'm, yeah, so I'm saying that's not, that's not, that's something not right with this, you know, like, like we can't be seeing it correctly because I do see these immigrants who, who are quite, you know, fight, fighting to get here. 
And for me at the time, just based on how I moved here in Atlanta, I was specifically thinking of, um, you know, immigrants from, from, the, from the motherland that I knew and got to make relationships with. Right. Because, you know, when you, get, when you get let go from a job and you're trying to make money, I was cleaning buildings. I was doing whatever to make ends meet. And so, you know what I mean? So I was running into some of these quote unquote saying immigrants. And then when you get into the cleaning industry, you know, there's a lot of Hispanics in that industry. So just watching them or whatever. But I, you know, me, I'm a friendly person. So I would get to know their stories. Right. I was amazed at, you know, the, the, the hard work that they was putting in with the idea of taking care of their family. Uh, I came across, you know, one brother that was doing like a hundred hours a week wow. in security while his son was up in Canada going to college. But their whole goal was once he finished college was for him to be a doctor and go back home. So they huh. had this full plan. You feel me? Like the father's here doing a hundred that hundred hours a week is just to make sure his son finishes school and the school, you know, and he was gonna finish school up medical school up in Canada and go back home and be a doctor back home. Like, you know what I mean? So when I'm learning these stories, I'm just going, Wow. You know, I, I spent all my life trying to get out of my little two lot two stop light town. And nobody where I'm from thinks like but I'm these people are meeting here. And so to make a long story short, I wrote this piece saying it's a shame that we don't see that. And I've always told people that that piece was the birth of mental dialogue because mm-hmm. I remember I wrote the piece and I ended up calling Mark Mark Ranger and saying, I read the piece to him. He was like, that's a powerful piece. And the piece ends with, you know, understanding how important history is so that we could understand the giants we once were and the giants we still are today. That's how the piece ends. Mm. And so, you know, like Mark was blown away by the piece. And in that same conversation, this is very ironic. I was in a barbershop, supposed to get my hair cut, and I'm outside, you know, running my mouth like I'm doing now. I'm running my mouth with Mark telling him, reading the piece to him and telling him about it. And so we just get locked in. And he was like, man, that piece is so powerful. So I'm skipping my hair cut and just talking to him. And then, and, and so I go back, get my hair cut, and I go back to that same barber a week later and say, man, you think I could um, do some talks about things when you talk about it in our community here mm-hmm. in the barbershop? Mm-hmm. The dude was like, okay. So that was the birth of what I ended up calling mental dialogue. Got it. But I didn't write peace with that name. It was just that peace is what sparked it. And I kept thinking about it because when I said the mark on their phone, man, I was like, man, it's got to be something we can do about how we think psychologically. So, so for everyone who's listening, Mark Ranger is a mutual friend of ours, classmate of Smitty's at the Air Force Academy. Um, and so you were talking with them on the phone and, and, and y'all are vibing and getting inspired. And, and, I, and, and that's I like the Genesis story of that um, coming out of that piece into the barbershop talk to now into what it's turned into. One thing before we go on, this a question is, you know, you are a.k.a. Black Socrates. Why did you choose that particular name? Absolutely. Um, this is the first time anybody will hear this publicly, man. And I've always knew that this question would come. Like I knew it. I, I, I actually picked the name for somebody to ask that one day. Didn't know when it would be. I've been black side of people for a lot of years. Well, I'm glad this it was been, me. Today, yeah, you were the one, brother. It's perfect that it is you. It's very ironic that that is you know you. If we get into some of the backdrop of you even doing this podcast, but yeah, I always set it up because. I thought it was a good marketing name for one. That's just a, the, the business end of it. But in the actual selection of that name, um, being a reader, another philosophy, and things of that nature, having this familiar with Socrates, the actual Socrates, you know, from Greek background, a lot of people don't know this, but basically 
Socrates died for something to die for what he believed in. He literally put on trial at the end of his life for walking around Greece and having all these followers just because of his philosophies, kind of in a sense going against maybe what the government at the time was saying or whatever. That's, that's how the government took it. I don't think that was necessarily his purpose, but again, just forcing people to think and, and, and things of that nature. So I admire that story and literally the way he ended his life, which was Basically, they said they put him on trial and says, if you don't stop these teaching, mm-hmm. you're going to be put to death. Wow. And so he, he, yeah, and this is, you got to hear the story. So he's basically, so you get it, you know, as a, you're faced with death. So he's like, what's, you know, what's your last thing you want to do? So he basically calls his closest friends to include Plato, because this is who recorded the story, of course, because Socrates didn't write anything down. And um, so he calls his closest circle of friends and, um, he literally says, I want to spend the last time, you know, last period talking to you. Well, at the end of capture, it was a full debate on his friends from a logical perspective. They're saying, tell, basically telling Socrates why he could concede to what the state wants and still be within his moral authority. Mm. And so this is, so basically they end up having this amazing discussion where he basically, everybody gives their argument and he literally breaks down their argument to say, Yo, that sounds good, but logically, Don't make I got to stand on this. Yeah. Right? So I'm sitting here blown away because I'm looking, I'm reading their argument. I'm like, yeah, what they saying, it makes sense. Plus, he can live if he listen to what they saying. Right. This dude still stuck to logically, he felt he was right. So boom, in my mind now, of course, I don't know exactly how this part happens, but you know, at that time, they would make him drink hemlock um, and poison himself to death. Wow. That's how you would do it. So in my mind, I always pictured it as this man saying, all right, none of y'all made sense. Give me that drink. Put that thing up and left it up. <laughs> so, so I had to tell that story because for my people, and you've always known this, I've always felt that I had enough of a warrior nature to the extent that I was willing to die for a call right. that even came to that. Now, we're fortunate to live off the shoulders of past giants so that that has not been our experience. You know, I'm 44, so I'm fortunate enough to not have those type of experience of what we know. Maybe some of our ancestors here in the states, yeah. or you know, whether you know, with civil rights that time period, a lot of people know about you know that kind of thing. And I had some tumultuous times in my little small town or whatever that could have turned into something, but it wouldn't have been for no cause. It would have been for some BS. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. You know what I mean? Again, not to overplay that because I'm from a small country town. I didn't go up in Compton or anything like that. So I don't want to overplay that. You know what I mean? But but I'm saying that to say that I still believe that I was for our people to that extent. And I've always related to those warrior nations. As I mentioned, Malcolm X being my idol. And so what happens is because I respected Socrates, it's part of the reason for Socrates. And then the non-marketing perspective was by simply putting the black on front of it. I wanted to actually ruffle the feathers of quote unquote those in the country community who might say, Hey, man, why this dude he he you know, quote unquote, he righteous. Well, how are you gonna take some Greek name? Right. And from a marketing standpoint, you mean like the are you talking about that, black intellectuals there or other people who may not be? Um, yeah, like black intellectuals or, or quote unquote people within the conscious community yeah. or whatever. Yeah. So by putting the name, just simply putting black Socrates, because you know, there's always this concept within our community when it comes to identifying ourselves. You know, it, there's a history within America where we notoriously put, you know, the black, 
you know, um, um, what I think it was uh, Foster. I can't think of Foster's first name, but he's the Black Babe Ruth, you know, of the of the Negro League or whatever. Right. I can't think of Foster's uh, first name right now, whatever. But we're notorious for identifying with in a sense, the dominant culture, you know, if I can use that term to the extent that we'll just put something as the black this or the black that. And so that's not necessarily a good look when we're doing it from that standpoint. Right. But I did it intentionally from a marketing standpoint, because in my mind, even to have somebody within the country community saying, well, why would he name himself after a Greek philosopher? Why he, why he name himself after an African philosopher? Right. Uh, in my mind, the minute they're saying that, I got them. They'll never forget yeah. You feel me? Yeah. And so that was that perspective. And then from the regular, just for people that are aware of Socrates, it's also the relatability of it. You know what I mean? Like he's automatically identified with uh, being philosophy. And so in my mind, I believe that I am a philosopher. And if I would be laid in the earth, you know, laid on the earth today, I would want my evidence to say, here lies a philosopher. Sure. And that's not something that most think of. And so that's why the name, the full reasoning behind the name. I don't know if that makes sense. No, it makes yeah, sense. that's kind of my concept. Mm-hmm. So that's why Black Soccer to you, brother. And to that point, um, part of it for me, you know, people may not know or be aware that I'm I'm pretty conservative um, in terms of, you know, whether it's political things or personal things or cultural whatever things. I'm more on the conservative end of the spectrum. Um as compared to what's no, the norm in the black community. And um, you and I, over the years online and occasionally when the, the internet wasn't even big enough for our talks, we'd get on the phone mm-hmm. and go back and forth on particular topics. So we've had debates over a number of issues. And, and um, although neither of us had to drink hemlock for, for being, for winning that the debate. <laughs> 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 you know, we'd, have, we'd have to die for the debates, yeah, I, you know. I, 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 think, I, think I got that warrior speed, but I might have let you win right. when that was on the line. <laughs> right. Right. You got this one, man. You got, I, I, I like, you got I like this to one. say I got that kind of spirit, brother. <laughs> so, so we we didn't have to die for it yet. You know, we ain't got to die. Uh, we had some pretty consequential debates over the years mm-hmm. on definitely on the state of the community. And in fact, this like you're saying, this conversation is kind of like an inception type of conversation because part of the reason, a big part of the reason why I even am doing this show right now and the, and the underpinnings of it, which is teach people to do or teach yourself to do well, learn how to do well, teach others how to do the same, uh, publicize the success stories and ignore the haters. That's the underpinnings. That's the philosophy underpinnings for my show a significant part of that is built on when you and I had debates around the 2012 elections. And then after that, around a lot of the um, police shootings of unarmed uh, black men in the community, we would just talk about things I've read from Thomas Sowell and um, uh, Walter Williams. And and then you gave me books like um, Michelle Alexander's uh, new Jim Crow and um, uh, who's the one dude whose name is skipping my mind. Um, Oh, maybe, um, maybe Wise, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Tim, Wise. Tim Wise. Maybe. Tim, yeah, Wise. Tim Wise. I read a bunch yeah, of stuff. Yeah, I'm, but... And I'm, th- I'm so thankful, so thankful for you introducing me to Soul, too. Let me throw that out real quick. 
well, you we've helped each other, and our, our right. I think our mental dialogue, if I could borrow that for a second, has helped Absolutely. has helped me grow to develop. And even it's the it's a like I said, it's a significant reason for why I built this show um, because there were some things that I just didn't see. Like I am one of those immigrants who came from another country and made a land of opportunity and couldn't get why, if we came from a whole other country with two suitcases fleeing as refugees, why can't people mm-hmm. who are black folks in this country who got it right in front of them, you know, mm-hmm. why couldn't they take? So I was probably having the same existential thought process for a whole significant portion of my life. Why couldn't, why can't these folks take advantage of the opportunities that are sitting right here and they grew up with and born into it. And, and, and just mm-hmm. through, through our discussions, I've certainly learned a lot about uh, and, and been forced to test my assumptions to learn a lot more about the history of what's happened in this country and how it's been effective. And while I'm still tend to be more on the conservative side, I think I've developed a lot more empathy and understanding for, for, places that people grew up in that weren't like mine. I had two parents that are college educated and an engineer and a computer science person that were professionals. And so I, I can't even speak to someone who, you know, grew up in a different environment. So it's like I said, it's, it's, it's a good that we're having this conversation because your mental dialogue helped me. And it sounds like that's also what you were doing in those barbershops. So when it was in the beginning, mm-hmm. what was that like? Like, what were those, some of those talks like, what, what how were the, how, and how was the community responding to them? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, man. The first, first one, you know, I'm thinking when I break it down to the barber shop, I'm thinking going and I'm going to the barber specifically, like saying, "Look, this is what I want to do." And I'm thinking, as barbers, y'all know people that would like what we're about to do. So I'm thinking this is gonna take off because I'm I got the barbers on my side. They could particularly ask the particular people who would already like to do something like that. Right. And the very first, the very first one was. Uh, should the black community really vote vote for Obama? Wow. I was trying to play off something relatively relatively um, you know controversial. And, and so this I is in two thousand eight, right? Whenever he's his yeah, first so this is October, the very first one. Yep, the very first one. So wow. I'm promoting it, and when I would go promote it, people in the barbershop like, oh yeah, yeah, we gonna be there, we gonna be there, because you know they want to have a conversation right there. Like, no, 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 it ain't till to this date. You know what I mean? This kind of thing. <laughs> this was October, so it was, it was a month before the actual election, but it was just the timing of me getting you know right that piece and promoting it for a month. I was promoting it for about a month, and so every time I would go in there and say, hey, I had to this guy let me put the little flyers up. And so the thing will break out. So I'm thinking, man, can't wait for all these people to show up. So he's going in and it's three people. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best. <laughs> so it's three people. Now coming out of the music industry, like I used to make my artists do, you know, whether it's 10 people in the audience or 100 people in the right. audience, you get the same performance. And so it forced me to boom, go into action just like I was a, now I'm a performer. So I had that discussion with them three people. Like it was a, a whole lot, you know, because I was definitely inside. I'm very disappointed based on everybody saying they were going to be there. You know what I mean? Of course. And so, because it was a free event. And so, yeah, man, we still had this amazing discussion that night. And then I just did it. It was a once a month thing. Kept the grind going for a number of years, maybe about two, three years before I got into the lifetime period where I didn't do it for two years um, or whatever. But the cover, you know, the, 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 and I ended up moving. So when I would move, I would just take it. I would go into a new barbershop and say, hey, man, can I? Do it here, right. that kind of thing. So when I was move, and I moved around Atlanta a lot. So every time I would move, I would take it, and I would have to almost rebuild it in every barbershop. Right. I had one point where I was doing two barbershops, just I would alternate and that kind of stuff. And then I noticed that eventually, and then having to change the change the, the, the direction of it, 
I noticed based on the topic, it was, it was bad after the attendance. Okay. And so when I kind of got it grown up to a dirt, certain point where I was averaging maybe 25 people in the barbershop, that kind of thing, sometimes more. But when I was getting that average right, I started saying to the group, man, uh, I'm going to make it more of a more interactive experience of just having these discussions. We'll make, you know, we'll bring this to the table on future back on business, you know, whatever. So I'm get, taking surveys, getting feedback, and everybody that's coming already saying, yeah, yeah, we like this. We like where you're going to take it. We like where you're going to take it because I want, I wanted to get away from, we only have, we have a low attendance based on the topic. Right. So I, I start changed the idea to the mental dialogue live experience and I'll say it's going to make it more interactive. So for about three months, everybody's telling me they're on board and I was kind of giving them pieces of how it might be. And then at one discussion, I would say, here's something else we would do. And oh, yeah, we like that. So I do my first mental dialogue live experience and my best friend and one other person show up late. Ah, uh, uh, again. <laughs> So I was devastated, man. I'm like, oh, this built up. And people, you know. Yeah. And, yep. And so what happened was, it timed out at the same time as my getting let go. So we took the Yeah, it timed out at the same time. And so then you already heard how that story ended up coming back. I got on the radio. And another barbershop years a few years later asked me to start it back. Okay. And that's that's yeah, and I'm back on the run that I'm on now. And then at the beginning of this year, I revamped it again because about three years ago people kept saying, We need to turn this into a business. Because at the time I was just doing it out on my own dime, yeah. out of my passion. As I told you, I wouldn't even take even higher paying jobs that would require too many hours for me not to put the time I wanted to put into it. Like, right. I was trying to find my space. I wasn't necessarily happy about not making the money I was used to, but I, because of my corporate experience, you know, and one other corporate experience real quick, I, I did decide to go back into the supply because I had that background and that job moved on me about a year and a half later. So I, wow. I had decided I was going to get into supply and have it as my main money, but, you know, but set it up to where I could still always be in a dialogue and grow it. And when that job up and moved, that's when I was just like, forget it, man. I'm not going to go back in that route no more because it ain't working out when I try to go corporate. It hasn't worked out, you know, among other things. And so I just like, this is my passion. And people kept saying, you can turn this into a business. So about three years ago, I turned it into an LLC and not really having any business savvy because the music industry is totally different. Um, and so that's been my stubbornness is to keep fighting through this organic, Meeting of the minds once a month, along with the radio show, is the kind of the glue to it all. It's been just a, a a push and fight to tell people getting information shouldn't be just free. Right. You know what I mean? Because um, you know I'm I'm a I, I you know I, I'll say this I love the opportunity that exists in this country and and, and the term I like to use is revolutionary capitalist. You know, for the fact that I do care about my community, we can put this all together. And with people like yourself having different mindsets, it forces us to learn, which is the premise of mental dialogue, welcoming different mindsets. Yeah. I tell people we're the best we're the best in the world at having hard conversations. Nobody does that better than us. Yeah. Well, and you you also to expand your audience, you in addition have a podcast as well now too. So you do the live show uh online and live like a radio show every week. Mm-hmm. And then you mm-hmm. also every Saturday. Every Saturday well, what you want to tell everybody what time it is every Saturday? Yeah, ten a yeah, ten AM to twelve PM. We used to say the time is the Men Dialogue Talk Show. 
Uh, we are the return of intelligent radio, and our motto is all I ask is that you think. Every Saturday morning, we have tough conversations, typically about race and sex, the conversations America's af- afraid to have. I, I'm a big believer in those are the conversations that can bring us together, but because we avoid them, we are experiencing the divisiveness that we're walk, walk, watching right now in America, in my opinion. Yeah, it's it's so crazy, man. It, it was even like, a, you know, at my son's school, they didn't really celebrate Black History Month you know, at his elementary school, um, at least not in a way that was obvious. Like I couldn't see a single poster up. There was no displays in the library. Um, I, you know, and I was wondering about, it. I even asked my son, you know what black history month is? And, and he was kind of like, or are you guys celebrating black history month at school? He's like, what's that? You know? And then I had to look at myself and say, what are we doing at home? So we stepped our game up a little bit as well, but they're, they're not, they're not doing anything at the school. So I went and talked to him and it was, it was good because, um, you know, they wanted to hear it. But then they put out this note a couple of weeks later on this online system they use that said, um, or oh, have an international day of happiness. Make sure your child wears yellow to school tomorrow. I got three emails and a note from the teacher and I replied back like, I don't even know what international day of happiness is, but y'all can do black history month. You know, like as a black parent, this is disappointing. Teachers shut all the comments down, shut all the comments down on the system that they had to use the commentary on. Um, but she didn't stop there. She ended up still continuing the conversation so that we could bring people together as opposed to moving people apart, which is what you're saying. And exactly. but what I wonder about is um, you. It sounds like the show is what brought you out of that time when you had that depression. That it, that it kind of rescued you back out yeah, of the, it, it, it kind of, yeah it kind of cared me yeah it cared, cared me or whatever because I'm looking for work and I'm doing I don't had more jobs than anybody you know well maybe not you TQ I'm pretty sure you know some people that had a bunch of jobs <laughs> uh, but I had yeah <laughs> you know what I mean just you know be realistic here or whatever because again you know that's me talking from an American standpoint you know what I mean <laughs> so, so you know we kind of get into our own you know selves and don't think about others you know from the time you know from, to a certain extent but I've definitely had a, you know all type of odd jobs, you know, trying to make it family asking like, what are you doing? You know, yeah. go, whatever. You know, I mean they was always happy anytime I would try to go into the, you know, that corporate situation. Right. And, and I and I did whatever and and again they never really worked out. And I found definitely much more peace in making sure that I was able to keep it going. And that's what happened. So I was I was dedicated to the show and I definitely had times where based on my finances just being real, where it was almost like I'm gonna have to give up the show and like even once the event started, a couple of times where I might have to give up the event because you know I remember you know another good friend of one of ours that you've had on the show, even when he had come and supported, he was like, "How are you gonna make money from this?" Yeah, and that's a good question. It's a great question and whatever because typically in business you want to be meeting a need if you want to sustain yourself. And in my eyes, what I'm doing is basically creating an industry to deal with the psychology of us. I don't think there's an industry that does that. So. Yeah. So, you know, so so I think I know that I'm I know what I'm up against. I'm hoping that my stubbornness, which again is definitely has maintained my consistency as far as, you know, turning into a full viable uh financial opportunity or whatever. Again, I definitely see it as easily being supplemental income as I grow it. And maybe it grows into my biggest dream, which is that people around the country have opportunities to go to their own mental dialogue clubs that are that are concerned, in a sense, first and foremost with the black community where we open and are uh, open to all opinions coming and giving perspectives because we need that. Uh, I am focused on 
again, as I said from the very beginning, that mindset that does not allow us to see opportunity. And so by having bringing people like you to the to the show, lets people hear different perspectives and being welcoming for that. Because as you just as an example of, we're a country now that's less welcoming of different thought processes. Less welcoming. Some people things. are. Some people are. We can't let certain opinions be like it's everybody's opinion. That's fair. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, very fair. And so you know, so anyway, I decided to say that that by being welcoming of of that level of diversity. And yeah. Like you. you, you're the, you're a voice for turning that around. So your voice needs to, I hear what you saying that you want to have your voice be wider. So that's more the impression that people get than what's maybe being pumped today. Mm-hmm. And, Absolutely. and that's real, that's man. I, that my voice as much as letting everybody's voice be heard. Yeah. I just want to be a conduit. Like that's my role is to be good at moderating, let, you know, and and being better as a community of allowing diversity of thought. Like we have to be better yeah. at that. We gotta see value in that because that's always a reality. And that's what every culture has. You know, we just had an experience where sometimes we lose sight of allowing people who think conservatively versus liberally liberally and that kind of thing. We really we sometimes we seem like we're fighting for having a similar thought and that's actually the not the best direction right. Yeah, yeah. Especially you would think that's weird in a market-based free market economy that all kinds of thoughts and opinions should be available because that's what people tend to think on the business side. So you would think on the thought side, it would be the same. Um, but you, I, I like you, man, I've had various careers. You looked at my resume. I've done all sorts of things. So I, I, I understand what you mean by doing different things and trying to find what's your passion so you can stay in that lane. And and you also you haven't just done things on the show. You've also done different things in the community. Um, what types of things? Uh, why don't you talk about some of the things you've done in the community to try to help build what you do in the dialogue sessions and put it into life? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I've always helped with another organization just to throw this out. It's for feeding the homeless. That's always been a passion of mine. So that's something I've always done since I've been here. Been fortunate enough to do that through another organization, but as far as the mental dialogue community. So by having these once a month group discussions, because this is where most of those connections have happened, I've I've been able to bring in lawyers to help our community understand how to interact with the police better, things of that nature. And that ended up pulling me to moderate other events related to that. Once somebody saw me do that, that kind of thing. My biggest story is that once a month event, this is the benefit of having it and wanting to grow to other cities is by connecting in that manner uh, once a month, anything that I could even highlight to be honest with you, literally comes from that connection of people knowing that I'm in the community. Uh, just for example, like I got an opportunity, didn't even notice it was coming, but I'm going to be at the Capitol in a couple of days here in Georgia speaking on how to continue Martin Luther King's legacy from a community perspective. Wow. So that's all coming because that because I'm grassroots to the core. Like right. I really would never move from there because I that's, I think that's the key to anything personally. So because I do things grassroots, I don't do that kind of thing. So it's cool to get recognized and things have happened like that over the years, all from that barbershop. Right. Because, I mean, like even people having their own personal testimonies of getting that first investment home that came from we for a while we did smart money one on one. So basically, I'm in that in that well, now we do it in a coffee shop. But I'm in that coffee shop always saying, what does this community mean? Right. And just being open to different thought leaders coming through and, and, 
and people with different levels of experience, getting people jobs, getting people connected. So it's hard for me to say what I've done as much as to say that's what that event has done. Yeah. And any opportunity I've gotten would typically come from somebody noticing. Uh, I mean, and I'll say this real quick, like even having, you know, even different political leaders saying, you know, you're touching the people. How do we get to your platform? So that's kind of how I've ended up turning into a business saying, well, I've built it up, not even with the thinking of actually having a platform that people would pay for, but, you know, since the platform is there, that's the business side. If people can have, you know, again, as long as you're righteous in your approach, and again, I'm not, you know, when I say righteous, I'm just talking about, you know, it's not nefarious to try to, you know, trick people or anything like that. So, you know, again, whatever it is, I give people opportunity to get access to the platform, you know, at a cost, whether it's advertising on the show or coming and coming to the live event. So I don't know if I really answered your question. Oh, no, you did. You did. First of all, I I do want people to know that they could advertise on your show. I want people to know (laughs) that they're that. And this is something I was thinking, man, is I don't know if you do do this yet, but you should be charging a fee to come speak at these places that you go speak to. And yeah, I, I do, yeah, 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 I do, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, and I, you know, yeah, absolutely. And I know because I, I even the way we've talked about it before, you are so grassroots sometimes that I'm like, but brother, you got to cut the grass. So let's get some some infrastructure in there so the grass right. can stay, you know, manicured and stuff. But and I say it like this because you're so humble that you almost, I don't. You can tell me if I'm I'm reading this wrong, but you almost don't want to charge for what you do. You know, you just want to do it. You know, like it's just a byproduct of it, you know, and, and and I know that's built up over the years, but it seems almost like you're you're so community oriented that 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 you 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 rather people don't have to pay for what you got going on. So right, well, well what happens is uh, you know I, when it comes to this type of information and this type of stuff, specifically to the African American community, you know, we do have this history, or we would think of you know the realities of Martin and Malcolm, for for example, if we're realistic about how they die in a sense they didn't die with a lot of money or whatever. So, you know, even looking to that level of leadership and the level of humbleness that they had, it's kind of unfortunately seemingly have has been the standard for people in this arena. And so yes, I, I'm you know, I've even had a good friend say, you know, don't be so humble to the extent that you hurt yourself. Yeah. And so yes, that is a part of 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 how sincere I am about it. The, the, the term revolutionary capitalist is also kind of a, a shot at myself mm. to ensure mm. that I do listen to you um, who, and people like yourself who are smarter about infrastructure, smarter about op- you know opportunities to, in a sense, monetize it. Because at the same time, people say, well, what's you know, the, the, the assumption for the Mental Dialogue Community Club is that it should be a nonprofit based on what I'm doing. Right. But I've rejected, I've rejected that mindset because ultimately, um, the opportunities that are in this country, I don't want to keep pushing to go, you know, chase the money in a smart way and not prove it with my entity. Right. So I definitely have to overcome, you know, some of my own level of humbleness, as you say. You know, you you, you read it right, and I'm I'm definitely on that key. So I look to you, I look to Mark Ranger or whatever to be smarter about how I'm taking, you know, the platform that is built. And I do have people that come approach me. And of course, when they approach me, you know, there is, you know, there's a fee associated with it. I may still need to get smart about how I'm doing that, but that's definitely, again, that is how, you know, people can advertise, you know, we're reaching a couple thousand people a month, you know, with the show, that kind of thing or whatever. And, and of course, we want to grow that number. But, right. But it's, it's, I always tell people it's smart because I got smart people listening and smart people are 
for consumers. Well, so we're going to work on getting your speaking fee elevated and elevated <laughs> and elevated, okay? Because what you're doing is valuable, man, and more people need to hear it. And believe me, I, like I worked with Les Brown for a year and about a year and a half. And oh, wow. he, he, I was helping him build like a coaching company and his personal fee minimum, he charges $30,000 per one hour speech. And a lot of his clients, a lot of folks that we ended up bringing on who, who we were training to be speakers and whatnot, man, those cats were, they started off like their first initial goal was I'm coming to talk to you thousand bucks a piece. But many of them were like 5,000, 10,000 per appearance. And the point being that there are folks that are going to pay you that kind of money for the, to hear the message you have to hear. So we, we going to get it right, man. We gonna get that mental dialogue proving this, the, the, uh, the revolutionary capitalists, is at the helm as well as uh, Black Socrates. Um, Hemlock Free is going to be at the front of the line. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. We trying to live for hours. We right. trying to, we try to get get money for the next generation, which is a right. big push that we got right now. Right. Uh, you know, within the community. And if I can highlight this, uh, we actually um, looking to go to um, Ghana um, next year. So okay. That's something that I'm very proud of uh, with the community. We introduced Matt to them. Um, actually, well, we're in April now, so this month we'll be introducing it as a, a live experience. Okay, you know, here in Atlanta. But for anybody listening, if you like what you're hearing, just know my ultimate goal, if you find a way to support it, whether it's the radio show, is that you have a mental dialogue community club capable of doing all the things I said in your your city, in your town. So, what what would that look like? What would what would a mental dialogue club look like in any other city in America. And so, and like, so two parts of it is how would it be related to you? So like you help them set it up. Would you like, would you mm-hmm. be a franchise or, and they have a franchise or would you just help them spark it off and they run it or how would you want to do yeah, it? Yeah. That's, yeah. 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 That's the simplest way to look at it. Um, I guess um, the business model that I'm considering, um, it's, it's not necessarily franchising because a lot more to it. Um, before I understand it's like a, um, a business pod, opportunity or whatever um but what i even explain you know the details of it but yeah how it would look is basically we would basically um give you a, a, a manual on you know what we do and basically really help more or less with the marketing yeah you know, it's it's such an organic club that in a sense a part of the direction for somebody running one in another country in another city or whatever would be more or less the people that's in your community will give you, you know, some of your own directions for us. Like, for example, we've done teaching people how to plant gardens, even though they live in the city, if that makes sense. So yeah. we've had those type of events, things of that nature. So that was based on the skill set that was in our community. So you want to, you know, so it'll be something like that where you just basically have this once a month gathering and the ultimate goal, because I don't think this happens really anywhere. The ultimate goal is that people from all walks of life see the, the advantage of coming together at least once a month. That's why it's called a community club. Right. Like I've literally had, for example, in a barbershop, I literally had a welfare mother and a multi-million man just to give a, a, you know, just a little piece of context. And for me, that was a dream to have that happen. I, and I didn't know she was until she announced it. We were doing like a poverty simulation and she ended up sharing it. She had been coming. I never made that assumption. But she was just so moved by what we were doing to the extent that she shared that to say this event has me thinking on another level and has me pushing towards this and that. Mm. So that's how it will look everywhere is the simplest thing that I used to always would describe it is if you knew all the smartest people in your city were gathering once a month, would you not be there? Right. And without having any direction, 
that gathering a lot could come from that is just as long as everybody that comes in the room is understood. They put their pants on just like you do. So it doesn't matter your your financial status. It doesn't matter your political status. Like that's how the room is treated. I don't think there's a place where people of all walks of life get to rub elbows. Mm-hmm. And that's part of my dilemma is making sure people understand, you know, that are busy, that are you know, professionals and doing that thing, like make time for the people in this very organic manner without it being a direct, okay, what am I getting today? Right. You you feel me? I always tell people, you know, you come to my event, not looking for what you can get, come to my event, looking to what you can give and it'll work out better for everybody. What? So you've done this now since 2008 with the little break in between. So mm-hmm. almost 10 years. Um, and having done it through all that time and thinking about these business pods you want to set up across the country with the mental dialogue communities, what kind of skill sets does it take to be successful at moderating a mental dialogue live event or at carrying on the kind of thought development and process that goes on uh, at, at one of these type of organizations? So what skills does it take? Well, the key word you just said is uh, being a moderator. I think that's a unique skill set that I maybe unknowingly had or whatever, and people people would keep pointing it out when I was just doing it in the barbershop, kind of having to, um, having to learn, you know, in the barbershop, being a person who's very opinionated in order to keep people coming, I had to obviously learn to quell down my own need to want to talk and speak at at my own event, that kind of thing or whatever. And so at the end of the day, um, I guess I don't know exactly what the skills are behind being a moderator, but that's what I would be looking for right. in, in the event that, you know, we create this flagship organization that is now hopefully with the idea of, uh, you know, we're going to have this manual type thing. Now, to be honest with you, just due to, because it is so organic, I actually foresee myself expanding it similar to maybe how a preacher does a church in the sense that I'm going to put foot on ground in the first new expansions myself. So sure. we're going to build it slower to kind of create a, a, a foundation. But at one point I was thinking of creating manuals and let people just pick up the manuals and try it that way. But I now see just based on it being such so organic. So again, we're going to slow down to create a stronger foundation you know, with the idea that once we have four or five clubs, we'll start having national provisions so that each club can start learning. What, what are you doing over there? What can we be doing? How can we be better? And just continue to grow it, you know, in that manner. But the ultimate skill set is just one of those, you know, people that really understands how to control and moderate, uh, uh, you know, which can be heated and passionate discussions. Yeah. Our only two rules are, you know, our only two rules are we don't allow political correctness be as passionate as you want to be, mm. but respect everybody's opinion. Those are our only two rules in the discussion. So being a moderator, so like being able to not be the one running the conversation, but you're just guiding the conversation, kind of reserving your personal opinion. Also controlling the room is important. Any other things you've noted that um, are things within you that have helped you um, keep it going and do it well, either that you thought about yourself or that other people have pointed out? What other kind of things are in you that help you do that? Yeah, yeah. One other thing that is very, very key um, in the sense that you are open forum, which you allow people to come to, uh, it would also, again, even somebody that says, oh, you know what, I think I could do that, or I could, uh, that makes sense, or, and it, you know, it could be a situation where it's a decent, once it's done correctly, it could definitely be some decent side money. It's still a business, so you'll still have to put in before that money returns to you. Right. Uh, but for somebody that, that's looking to do that, another thing that's very, very, very important, is really most important, is the protection of your group. And so it will require that you, have a 
a strong batting process, which I mean, if you're running it, it's kind of that could be left to you or you can get a team around you or whatever. But I typically don't even give that to my team from the standpoint of when somebody says they want to present something in front of the club, that kind of thing. I typically will go to go out and see what they have done, some other, you know, that type of thing, whatever. Or for like, for example, we don't allow multi-level marketing. Um, um, people to you know they can if they present it's just a product but not the idea of joining an ML right. that's like just one small thing and that's just it's not that none of you know they're all bad but it's just too risky so that's one thing that's kind of you know you know where I have you know, I have some more more marketing business who who market and advertise with me but they they've never advertised join at my event like that's Got not it. something that's going to be allowed you know that kind of thing so that's another very important thing making sure you're that, really you know, careful you about to, who you put in front of people. Right, right, right. Because you're guarding your community. Exactly, exactly. Because that's, you know, because, you know, here's your, the guarding is, you know, you try to be vetted on top. But your hope is that somebody who is getting in front, they realize if I burn one, then I just lose access to this whole community. So you have a pretty good opportunity for the people not to do that. I've had, I've been lucky that I've only happened, only had it once. And even my member that, in a sense, quote unquote, got burned didn't even come to me to ask, you know, what's, what's up with the situation. It was somebody who had become, you know, kind of a new member and they were nefarious and what they wanted to do, they were basically, you know, looking to take advantage of people. But had that person asked, I would have been able to at least say, well, he's just drawing. I don't know about this business yet. Right. And that kind of thing. It may have kept us from taking that step. And so even that member was, you know, now at that point, so unfortunately, come to find out, the guy used the mental dialogue name, which is always a risk, right? Yeah. So of course, I was very upset about that. And so at that point, I became super diligent in making sure that that member was, you know, right, right. I understand. Whatever. That so, makes sense. So he was able to do that or whatever. But that, you know, yes, I don't know how, how I could have stopped it. I just typically people do say, well, what's up with this person, that kind of thing or whatever. Obviously, I can't know everybody, but I definitely, when I know somebody has had a history and I've seen them do work, and those are the people that I easily, you know, send you to. Because I do tell people, make your own relationship. That's the whole point. Right. And a lot of the stories I have, I get at the Little Dollar, I didn't know anything about. Like, I literally had this one young sister, she's 23 now, and I was inviting these other ladies to come to the event, and we were, we were out supporting one of my other members at another one of her events. So I'm, you know, of course, inviting people to my event. So she walks by, and she wasn't able to come to the events anymore, but she tells the lady, Y'all should go. Mental dialogue changed my life. Mm. It's the reason that I'm. It's the reason I'm financially about. I'm financially independent. Oh, and wow. I was like, okay, go, all right, sister, tell me more. I mean, I was I was advertising, but I'm like your advertisement better right, than mine. Right. So, tell, you know, tell me more. Come to find out, when I had done one event at this other at this other location, she had come out. I brought in a couple of financial experts, and we were doing the smart money one on class, one on one classes. She ended up coming to a class where we had a um, a lawyer who was teaching estate planning. She she attached to the um, lawyer, get her estate plan. Then we had a stock class. The guy we had teaching the stock class has his own community. So she had come to our class. She goes attached to him, and we taught her how to invest. Wow. So for her, the genesis was just coming to one of our live experiences. And that turned into her taking her own steps to literally at the time when she was Telling those ladies that she says, "I got one, some, one, some, one more semester as a teacher, and now I'll be, um, and then I'm done with teaching, and I'm doing my own business, and I'm financially independent." Wow. Like that's an amazing story that I didn't put 
those two together purposely because a lot of times I do commit people intentionally. But that's that's the dream of what the live experience can be in anybody city if all the smartest people I use the word smart, they don't have to be smart. You know what I mean? But yeah, it, yeah. all walks of life made a point to come to a club and and give to one another. Those are the type of stories that can happen all the time. It's gotta feel good, man. Um having that. What does it feel like having that come to life? Coming from the place where you were at lifetime, letting go, building it up to now you're changing exactly. lives like that. What does it feel like? That's the moment. That's what says this path is right for me. Even though I'm still, you know, just being honest, I'm still at a stage where it don't I certainly look pretty, you know, for somebody outside looking in. Because, and, but again, that not looking pretty is me trying to get, having to get my own acumen up on how to be smarter and a better business person, how right. to treat something so organic, you know, with the structure of a of proper business practices. Like when I said I revamped it, having to, in a sense, pay somebody to give me a business plan. Well, I did a business plan for my record label years ago. I didn't even know I was going to do this as a business. So it came about as a business without me even thinking about create a business plan first. Cause it's like, what is it, how you create a business plan for this very organic, we hang out in the barbershop thing. You know what I mean? Like, how do you do that? And so, so yeah, so the not looking pretty part is me getting my acumen up from a business standpoint. But when you say, how do I feel? Those are why I do it. Cause I got more stories just like that. Tell, tell me one know. more. Tell me one more. Okay. Okay. Um, so, um, okay. Off the top, like somebody getting their investment home. Like I remember them coming to the smart money one-on-one classes, trying to get smarter about, you know, getting a home. But when we had those classes, we literally would teach about ways to make money because that's what smart money one-on-one was, right. Or whatever. So I knew they were getting, learning the process to and we got them connected to one of our real estate agents that was in the community. So I knew that they were through that process, but come to find out when they were leaving the state, they got another home. And I'm like, I remember when you were just trying to get your first home. Right. You're trying to go through the process to get an investment home. And they're like, I already got it. <laughs> wow. But I remember them coming, wanting the knowledge to get in a home. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I mean, yeah, like you, said, I you. you know what I mean? So, you know, just, you know, stories like that, you know, people, uh, you know, maybe think of, even to mention my boy real quick, because I told you that's why I came down here. It was pretty cool. I got connected to this brother by the name of Rick Mathis, who has, his, and I'm just really shouting him out on your podcast. I hope it was okay. Sure. But um, has a, a Black Friday um, film series that I highly recommend. It really it has part one, a remix, and a part two. I highly recommend part one and part two. This brother is an amazing filmmaker. And basically I was able to get my same partner that I came down here for. I was able to get his music and his documentary. Oh, all nice. because, yeah, all because I literally went to see, of all things, I'll go to see Farrakhan speak at this one event. Cause now that I have my own business, I got a schedule. I can do that kind of stuff. Right. Sure. So I go see Farrakhan speak in the afternoon. I'm in this black on um, raw, food restaurant and this brother who's Greg Mathis comes in promoting the event. I was like, Hey, what is this? He tells me what it is about. And I was like, man, I, I, I want to help promote this. So this dude heard about my platform. Um, and I said, look, let me help you promote it. So I show him what I can do. And over those courses of those few months, he needed music. My boy was back in the music industry, not that he, you know, raised the son, that kind of thing. And so I was like, Hey man, you might want to put together something for this thing. 
Um, and he liked it and put two of the songs in my man's documentary. That's really nice, man. That's really nice. And I, and that's, it's, it's one of the reasons I want to have you on the show because some of the stories I have that, that are folks of people who've done these certain type of what, you know, what people would perceive as big jobs or made these big changes in, in, um, their careers or sold businesses or whatever. And I, like, to me, that's not the only definition of success. Um, an, another definition of success, particularly in the communities of color is impacting communities in ways that are changing multiple lives. Cause with those lives, if you help someone, if you mental dialogue, black Socrates help somebody buy an investment home, you didn't just change their life. You change the life of their family, their next generation and friends and family around them. So some of the ripples you will never see yourself exactly. of what you're doing. But but to me, that's a success where, you, you know, that has to be publicized for other folks who, who who listen to the show and think, well, man, if I ain't some multimillionaire or some, you know, big time business person, I haven't succeeded or per, a person like me, like I've been a stay at home dad, you know, for seven years and I've been climbing the corporate ladder, building some business. But it's a success when you can impact and change lives. Um, and you're doing that in ways that, like I said, that 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 are that are awesome to me, man, and are going to have long lasting effects. Yeah, I mean, thank you, brother, man. And that's 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 the reward for me because I am committed to our community to that degree. I mean, and it was this you know very clear. I say this quite often when I'm on a public forum. Like I believe in the brotherhood of all humanity, of all people. I just happen to focus on our community in the, in the United States specifically because when you look on the the. the the, the wrong as far as the ladder goes quite often it seems like we're on the bottom or near the bottom in a lot of places we don't want to be. Right. And so I just have to, you know, naturally because that's my community that I come from. So that's my first focus. But my biggest dream is to elevate the mindset of my community so that not only do they see them, ourselves or themselves, however you want to look at it, as equals, but it's sort of the worst of the world respects us, you know, on that same level because we're still hurting in that category due to, you know, the history some of the history or the lack of knowing that history, as you say, you know, there is a reality. A lot of schools are moving away from teaching that different diverse cultures. And in my opinion, we're going in the wrong direction. We could actually be better if we, if we, we make sure we embrace our differences because they're not many. They're, the, the differences are small and minute, but it is a mistake to dismiss them. And that's what we're trying to right. do now. We're trying to dismiss them. And it makes you, people end up being colorblind for real, per se. You, you don't even see me. And the concept has become color rich, you know, I mean, is, which is an embracement of our differences to say, okay, you're not much different than me, but tell me culturally why you're different. And if you go from that perspective, we'll be much better than one another. So, and also so that people know that at my son's school, they did end up having a bigger display uh, for black history right. month. The teacher in his class taught like 20 lessons. They did that green eye, brown eye experiment or blue eye, brown eye experiment right. where they right. in kindergarten, wow, they actually went through in, it? in kindergarten. Yes. Yeah, I know it works. It works. Yeah. At any age, man, that's, uh, that's not, that's a whole another level. You're not announcing the fact that they just start saying, Oh, well, we'll celebrate that history. When they actually start doing action like that, that's the beauty of them in embracing what you ask. Yeah. And then, you know, they might have resisted it at first, but that's an example of what I just talked about. That's a color rich approach. Right. Because a lot of the schools are going away from it because they're like, well, we don't want to highlight differences. So that's why they go away from it. But to your school took your action and took a color rich approach to say, well, let's embrace this difference. And those kids are going to be so much better 
that experience because very few people in the country have ever experienced the blue eye, brown eye experience. You have to act different having been through that experience. So I applaud you, brother, for making a difference and saying, because a lot of people are too busy to even take that step. So I love it, but well, I, I love stories I, like that. I, like I said, man, I, I, I've been, I've been, you know, I've been inspired by by what you have uh, have, have produced and put out there and influenced me with. So um, I wonder, have you, in the course of your time, either with mental dialogue or otherwise, had to overcome any biases that exist out there in life or even in the in the professional right. arena? Right, 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 right. Um, yeah, that, I mean, that's a that's a reality too. Um, I mean, I was you know, I almost brought it up when you were giving an example of what your uh, wife went through in the in the about the career field or whatever. This is, and again, this is even not necessarily an overcome thing as much as just knowing about the experience. But even when I was in the military, I remember the first base that I went to as a second lieutenant, and they kind of had you come in and they had me go. I was in the supply career field, as you recall, and so I go through the. They had me going through all the different areas at first, you know, just kind of seeing or whatever. They were going to just kind of decide which area I was going to, in a sense, you know, take over as a second lieutenant. And so during that time, kind of being young and naive, I'm listening, you know, I'm listening to each group saying, well, what kind of issues do you have? I'm asking those questions. I don't even know if they asked me to do that, but that is my nature, just kind of saying, well, how does this run? And, you know, what do you like, what do you don't like? And so I didn't notice at the time, but I'm thinking that the person who's, you know, running the, running the unit, after I went through the circle through the different groups, I also kind of report what the troops were saying. And, hey, here's the things that they don't like. And, you know, like, and I'm thinking, you know, this is my way of giving him an opportunity to be better. That, you know, that's what I thought or whatever. Right. And, um, and so maybe within about two, two and a half months, I got moved from base level to group level. And for anybody that's not familiar with uh, the military structure or whatever, base level is kind of, the bottom level where you're in a sense learning the basic, you know, how things work or whatever. And so I got moved to great group level and only about a two and a half months in, and we didn't necessarily have a spot for you. We kind of, and we did have a number of second lieutenants, so it definitely looked okay to me. And so I'm being brand new. So they said, we'll move you to group level. So they moved me to group level. I ended up staying on the base, you know, for another three years. I ended up being president of the Black Heritage Committee and a couple of the same people I met in that first unit a part of the committee. I remember we had this one event where we were went and we stayed in the cabin and the cats took me to the side and it was like, well, we was always upset about them moving you initially like they moved you. And I didn't think nothing of it because I, you know, tried to learn what I learned at group level and eventually I got out of supply because I wanted to get out of the military. So I ended up going into the, the recruiting world. And so these uh, senior master sergeant and, and this chief sitting down and it was like, um, they really put a nail in your career had you been staying in. So I'm like, huh? Why? I don't get it. And that's when they broke down. It was like, you didn't, you, if you had been considered to stay in this career field, you would have had no base experience. That would have always hurt you long-term if you were considering staying in the military. So I tell you that story to say I was oblivious to it because one, I don't know any better. I'm brand new. But I never kind of, I always blew my mind. It was kind of like, um, man, I didn't even realize they had done that to me, but it didn't matter to me because I was getting out. But when I say they had done that to me, here's the reality of it. These same people that were sitting me down, they were giving me the perspective of some of the racial issues they were having within the unit. So they were the ones that connected that move and had way more experience than me to even bring this insight to me. So 
again, I'm only hearing their perspective, but it made sense once they broke it down to me that I I basically would have had a flag in my career had I wanted to continue down that path. Wow. But when you say, you know, overcoming it, it just didn't matter to me because I never had planned to stay anyway. But I definitely, once they connected the dots for, dots for me, I can recall those two and a half months that it didn't make full sense to me. You know what I mean? But I was so anxious to do well in another unit that I didn't hold on to that, if that makes sense. No, that makes sense. It totally makes sense. And, and yeah, you overcame it almost by not worrying about not even, like, registering it. Right, absolutely. You know, absolutely. And then, you know, in personal, you know, I mean, you know, we, again, hearing you talk about the police brutality stuff, you know, I've had that personal experience here in Atlanta where I got stopped you know, one time, absolutely, for for whatever well, I got pulled over for DUI. I had a sip of wine registered zero point zero zero at the, but I got taken in to get tested because they don't test you out in the field here in Atlanta. But just to even bring that moment up, even that's something that is something to remember is because when we, you know, because you remember we talked about the fact that I that's been an issue that you and I kind of debated over right. at times you know, or whatever. So we were having some of those debates before I even had that text. And I've been stopped by police on other stuff, but this is the one that matters to this conversation. But we were having those debates well before that moment happened. And, you know, there's always, unfortunately, in our community, these different discussions on how to handle those moments and things of that nature that always gets brought up. But I will say that, you know, based on, some of the training I received, I messed up on getting into some of the same training once I was in the spot. But at the end of the day, I still overcame from the standpoint of once I realized what was happening, it was an immediate acquiesce because just like we would want any of our children that are faced with that situation, yeah. the number one priority should be come home. Come home, yep. And so, and again, and that's not to say that, you know, for people that always hear me say this, there's always this backlash, uh, but that don't always work. Well, as I always say, if there's an officer walking around with a death wish, you're absolutely right. There's nothing you can do. But in more cases than not, once you once you recognize that that person's not going to give you that moment to kind of go back and forth, then when you ask me how I overcame the moment, it was completely acquiescing yeah. so that I could go back and fight another day. I didn't yeah. get the money back. You know what I mean? I, it was a case that was completely dropped. I didn't get the money back for my car bill at the time. I didn't get the money back for the days I worked. Again, and then and they hurt, and it came at a very bad time. Yeah. And you asked me how I overcame. I over, once I realized, and this is a, and, and again, and I'm gonna be always say this is a systematic issue. So a systematic issue. This is a black cop. So some people confuse systematic issues to based on being exactly who's doing it to you. A systematic issue of how our community is mistreated from law enforcement can be a black cop. So, you know, I don't even want to put it out there and let people assume that I'm talking about a white cop, you know, but, but, but at this time, he's doing a job that's made available. And the job that was made available, they had a new law that if you blow anything, not even above the illegal limit, that they can maintain you for a night. So mm. now that they have this So you spent the night the in the cell? No, actually, no. They had to let me go once I blew zero, zero, zero. Yeah. They had to let me go, but 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 this new law allows them to put a case against you. Right. I didn't get the case because all I had to do was I could have built you the legal limit is 
in that in Georgia is 0.08. So if you're anything under that in the past, I just let you go. Right. The rule, you can go um, 0.01, and it's the officer's discretion to say you was doing something. You feel me? So wow. once they got, you should say, so if you look at the, so this is what I mean by a systematic situation. So now you have a law in place that's going to hurt, unfortunately, whoever's getting stopped more. And we already understand the biases that are related to that. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's a systematic situation. doesn't matter if it's a black or white cop. He just know he has on his side that I can just put impaired for driving. Yeah. Now, we used to couldn't do that. So you just, you know, so once the assumption is made, oh, I can put a case on this person, then who is that going to hurt more of? People that can't afford to fight it. Yeah. Well, you to get, I definitely do, man. Yeah, and to, no, it's all good to get through all this stuff, whether it's that or other things in your career. Who have been some good mentors for you? Books. Okay. Well, Books. name. how about in that case, name three that you'd recommend? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I've already highlighted the book that changed my life, which is the autobiography of Malcolm X. I'm a big fan of, um, Autocast. Asada Shakur's, Asada Shakur's um, autobiography as well called Asada. I'm a big fan of recommending it. You know, brothers read Malcolm X and sisters read Asada. Yeah, preferably try to read both. And then another book that I, uh, and this is what you said, well, let me just start this other book out real quick. And there's this book called The Righteous Mind um, by, I think, Jonathan Haidt or whatever. And it's basically discussing. Um, how people are divided between religion and politics and mm-hmm. really gets into um, the backgrounds to why people think the way they do, which is very imperative for what I'm doing, right? So I'm trying to deal with the psychology of our people, then I need to understand how and why people divide over that. So that's a, another book that I would recommend. But as far as, um, you know, mentors, there's really been more peers and books for me. That's maybe that's probably, I would say, one of the mistakes that I, that I have I, I, did, I never really had a mentor in the military, so I might have got, you know, may have gotten, you know, better advice than what I allowed, in a sense, allowed to happen to me. Again, it didn't happen to me because I didn't care. But, but with a mentor, maybe I would have navigated that different. And I, and really, I definitely see people that have the advantage of having a mentor. But for me, most of my information being good, you know, loving to share knowledge. I just dig in the books and and take those stories and help them relate. You know what I mean? Like learning, like I said, even getting through the understanding culturally what happened to me with reading about Disney, you know, that kind of thing. So with me, it's just when people put that information down, if I can get my hands on it, I'll try to take what I can from it and help it help me navigate my life. But I probably could use a, a, a direct mentor, but I definitely hear people that uh, definitely have advantages because they have people that kind of show them, show them the way. Well, we, we're going to try to use a network to connect you up to, to some, man, so you can get that, to take what you're doing even to another level. Um, what do you do for fun, Smith? I'm still listening to music. Uh, it's crazy. Been a dialogue took over my life to the extent that I actually don't know everything that's coming out. Like I spent years of my life doing so. It actually surprised me how important this business, you know, it is to me to the extent that it took me away, quote unquote, from my, my first love. But I still, you know, still do that. And now she's just a mistress. Uh, Exactly, exactly, exactly. I literally used to know everything that was coming out. So yeah, she's just definitely just a mistress now. And uh, now I, I literally, I'm, I'm still big into 
face-to-face, you know, relationship opportunities. And so what happens is the live experience, you know, it is my business, ends up being, you know, quite fun for me. We have a, right. a, a, movie, a movie and dinner club extension. So I get to, so I don't just go to a movie and discuss it with one person. I get to discuss it with eight to 20 people. Right. Anytime we like, you know, we went to Black Panther, it was 16 of us or whatever. Nice. So, so I guess it's within the business, but that's my fun, you know, to be honest with you. So I haven't traveled in a number of years. So I'm super excited about of the opportunity to finally go to the motherland for the first time um, next year. So I definitely want to get back into traveling more than I have in the past few years. Cause I, I failed to do that. Yeah. Okay. That's awesome, man. And where can people find you online? All right. dialogue.com is the first place to go. If you want to support anything that you're hearing, you can scroll past all of, and it's also the good spot to go hear some of the shows. I keep shows posted there. I keep advertising anything there for, for example, especially for anybody that's in Atlanta, if you ever want to take part in one of our live experiences, which is every third Friday, but mentaldialogue.com. I'm super active on the Facebook page. I know people, are, and I'm moving to the IG more, but on facebook.com is going to look up Mental Dialogue as well as um, um, IG, you know, Instagram, at mental underscore dialogue. And then ultimately the show, you can go to blogtalkradio.com slash dialogue 2 and you'll be able to catch the show live on Saturdays or the podcast. And if you are a podcast junkie, then I recommend downloading the Stitcher app and search for Mental Dialogue, and that's a better listening experience to all of our shows. And I just recently started a new pop-up show uh, called Conversations with Black Soccer Team. So while I have, while we're here, I want to invite you on, teach you, we need to do it. You've been on the show before, but this new pop-up style is, is raw and intelligent conversations with thought leaders like yourself from around the country and around the world that's done like radio like you've never heard before. So I want to invite you to be on that. Pop-up. I'm down. Um, I'm, I'm already down. Well. All right. So I'm sounds already good, down. man, but that's it. And I, uh, and, and I, I, I have been on your show a couple of times, uh, and I've listened and I've been a, a call in person to ask questions of your guests and I've been a guest mm-hmm. and, and I love the show, man. I want to highly recommend it to anybody to check it out. All the sources that you just mentioned. Yeah, absolutely. Let me get, I was right now I'm still at the give up my direct phone number level. So I'm so humble. I think I believe that <laughs> even as y'all get me bigger and make me uh, give me these mentors and all this stuff in place, I actually believe I'm still be giving out my phone number. So maybe you'll change that in my life. But my phone number is four zero four. Six zero four nine four seven seven. That's for anybody that has a business or service and they want to advertise with a smart community. Please call me. I can send you the packages. Uh, we definitely are reasonable based on our reach, man. But we definitely have had people get a return on investment. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a, a, a member on your Patreon community and yeah, and uh, love the pub, man, that you're giving. So. Smith, it's been an awesome conversation with you, man. Um, I've appreciated having you on. This is Montoya Smith, a.k.a. The Black Socrates. Thanks for being on the show today, Black Socrates. Appreciate you, King. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating and review on iTunes or Google Play. Mm-hmm.